This is not the Mouth Sounds podcast. That's your other one. That's my ASMR podcast. I don't know what that stands for. Yeah, sure you do. ASMR? I think that's right. Let me check. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things that doesn't seem like a thing. Auto- Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response. Nope, got nothing. Hmm. Put it in notes. Some people have a very, a surprisingly strong reaction to certain kinds of like quiet sounds. Mm-hmm. And so there's this whole, like, uh, like a, not a cult, but the whole, like, all these YouTube videos of like people talking very quietly or like opening a box very quietly and like rustling paper around. Is this a rule 34 thing? Should be. Is that a gender swap? Is that what that's called? I don't know. I don't know if it's a thing, but it's. Uh, I can't help but think of a little bit like furries, or like I, I get <laughs> that it's this is like the month of furries for you, isn't it? <laughs> I'm thinking a lot about furries. I don't know why. Is there I a convention a late- in town. Or- <laughs> I had a latent period where I didn't think about furries for 25 years, and lately <laughs> I've been thinking about. <laughs> You're making up for lost time now. The yellow handkerchief on the butt. <laughs> That's for her. Um. <laughs> You know, or, okay, okay, better, like, My Little Pony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I, I'm not saying anything against the brony, <laughs> the brony community, but I feel like the brony thing got pitched as, hey, we're, we're a bunch of woke dudes who uh, love My Little Pony because of its message. And, like, you know, there's this childlike innocence and messages about friendship. And I, I wanted to, you know take that at something like like face value you don't want to look a gift brony in the in the anyway i i uh I, i'm not totally persuaded that that is a completely non-sexual thing is this going to be like the juggalos where you discover there's some deeper meaning and you're making making all these jokes but really you have to come back on it in a very special episode where you're like you know what juggalos i'm sorry i didn't understand i know I, well you know the thing is juggalos are going to be running this whole joint soon <laughs> I haven't made the joke, and I, I'm because I don't like to do political uh, bits. But like the the thing is, Donald Trump is kind of like the world's most sophisticated juggalo. I thought he I thought he wasn't. The whole thing was the juggalos weren't like you thought they were. I don't know anything about. I this learned- is John. John's the one who John's the one who goes out and he can't sleep, and so he starts googling things, mm-hmm. and then he learns about something. It's like, well, mm-hmm. apparently, cellular phones have gotten smaller in size. <laughs> People are carrying them on a regular basis. John was the one who had the revelation about Juggalos. All I right, think. you just went. You did not have this revelation, so you're still the, you're still solid with the, the whole uh, making fun of Juggalos thing. Well, you know, I'm I'm trying, as you know, John. I'm trying to grow as a person. But you know, they were pretty mean to Tila Tequila while she was performing at the <laughs> what's it called JuggaloCon, the gathering of the Juggalos. <laughs> yeah, JuggaloCon. That's what they call I just it. can't even say the word. I don't know. I, everything I know about Juggalos, I've learned from you. So this is really the blind leading the blind here. <laughs> yeah, they like that orange orange pop drink. And yeah, well, no, Tang? it's like the astronauts. No, 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 no. It's uh, is it Fago or uh, <laughs> it's Iron Brew? I think they call it Juggalo <laughs> drink. You got it right. I think Fago. Yeah, they like Fago. <laughs> like so, on my figo they say like on my figo they would say yeah uh and you know the, so the the bronies came along and i think we were supposed to feel that this was uh some kind of an empowerment movement it, it, it was close enough to certain other kinds of emerging things where you, you don't wouldn't want to just you know dismiss it out of hand but i think i think it might be a little bit of a sex thing i don't know i never got that vibe maybe you could be uh, projecting yeah 
You think I'm, you, finding, I'm finding sex in everything? Would you, would you like it to be a sex thing? Is that what you're getting at? I was trying to figure out where the, uh, the, the furry kick came from. Well, you know, it's sort of like, uh, did you see the clip of the, uh, the virulently anti-gay organization, anti-gay, well, you know, of course, they, there's, it's a dog whistle, right? It's all, oh, you know, protecting families and that stuff. But where they had Ted Cruz trot out on stage and he looked really awkward. Yep. Um, did you see that guy? I saw the, the angry guy. Yeah, I saw the angry guy. And, you know, again, I'm trying to grow as a person, John, but like what Molt said, it's like, you know, I would not be surprised to find out that that guy is totally gay. Of course he is. He looked totally gay. Yeah. That's and, how that works. That's how. <laughs> Aloha. <laughs> uh, and so, um, I don't know. And the lady doth protest too much. I, I have thought for some years now, for some 35 years, I have thought that fundamentalist boy we're really we're hitting all the bells tonight aren't we <laughs> fundamentalist we, christian we should say something safer like furries well you know furries i i've i've some of my best friends are furries well i wouldn't call them friends but i've known people who are furries and um it's always seemed strange to me like fundamentalist like tv preachers seem as with like chick publications they seem way more interested than they need to be in certain prurient issues do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, of course. Well, it's that's, a, it's that's a lady doth protest too much. Does, doesn't that seem a little bit, yeah. Although I'm pretty sure that's a misuse of that phrase. It's not as Which bad one? as begs the question, but. Oh, no, that's terrible. It's second level bad. Well, it's, 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 it's the penultimate. It's easily, far and away, the worst. Mm-hmm. Happening at the epicenter. Mm-hmm. What's I, the confusion about epicenter? What do people think that means? People say epicenter when they mean center. Epicenter oh, but, means a particular thing with regard to a, a, a geological yeah, event. No, I know what it means, but like. You think they're saying it to mean like center and not like the triangulation of They're doing a little bit of a case. They're doing a little bit of a casey. They're using a word they don't really need to use to mean something when they really mean this other word. You mean they're utilizing the word. They're utilizing (laughs) Utilizing it. uh, You know, I'm not against utilize. I I will prefer use over utilize a lot of times, but utilize does have a meaning. Like, you, like, for example, let's say you had a person in your organization. You have a new hire, as they say. Let's say you just brought, uh, brought this woman on, and uh, she has a Harvard MBA, and you have her filing. You might say, like, I feel like we're not utilizing mm-hmm. Susie well. You wouldn't say I think using, because that's, that's, that's pejorative. I would not say you're not using Susie well. You shouldn't be using Susie at all. But utilizing her means you're not making full use of what she's capable of. Mm-hmm. ASMR, uh, you should watch some of these videos. What's, so what's the point of the videos? Are they explaining the phenomenon, or are they videos that people who have this thing uh, watch and enjoy? People claim that this has – most people claim that it is a non, mostly non-sexual thing, that hearing people whisper – I'm, I'm going to make me read a Wikipedia article to you. ASMR signifies the subject, subjective experience of low-grade euphoria characterized by a combination of positive feelings, relaxation, distinct static-like tingling of the skin – uh, the, 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 the commonly triggered by specific acoustic and visual stimuli. Well, whatever, whatever works for you, all right? Hey, I'm not here to judge. Yeah, sure. So much. <laughs> You're not fascinated by juggalos at all? Not really, no. I, I, like, I, didn't, I hadn't thought about them in years until they came up as a topic on one of your other programs. And yeah. Then, then, then it's a bit. And now occasionally it comes up. And the furries, I really had not given any thought to really ever. But it just I'm noticing that it's a topic that you're interested in lately. Well, see, the furries, as with the bronies, with all respect, I thought the – see, and you heard me trying to address this with, with my other friend, John, where I honestly – I have not done the research on this. But, like – I, I, you know what? I shouldn't get into it. 
I, I don't know if you're supposed to have sexy time while you're dressed up like a fox. Oh, no. I, yes, I, I followed. Yes. There are, what do you think? Now, what do you think? I, I've really not considered that. And I, I think I think uh, the other John hit all the salient points. It's like, well, how is it any different than clothes? Sometimes you want them on. Sometimes you want them off. Sometimes you want them half on. I imagine it's the same, only the clothes are a dog suit. But if you have a paraphilia, you eventually... Uh, develop one hopes the self awareness to go. Hey, I'm really all about that, right? Like you've got to wear this hat. <laughs> That's my lucky hat. I don't fly without it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stirring it. Oh, she's great in that. Has she been in many other things? I don't think so. I don't, no, I don't think I would recognize her. <sighs> and so uh, people whisper. They do things like they tinkle ice around in a glass, mm-hmm. and, and it makes people tingle. I think I heard of this American Life or something about it. Oh, I bet. I'm sure. This mm-hmm. is a perfect topic for them. They, it's all audio. They could just do sounds like that, and it'd be like... I wonder if they've ever addressed Juggalos on there. Oh, I'm sure. I'm Heck sure they, were, they had <laughs> someone on Fresh Air at some point. Heck one. It's fairly kind. <laughs> uh, so, ASMR. You know, I've given you two big passes, and I'm not going to call you on the carpet right now, but I'm just going to bring them up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you an ongoing pass on your obviously extremely libidinal nature because that's something you have family. <laughs> I, I'm glad I looked that up last time because now you can just use it all the time and be like, yeah, that's a word. Is that a word you didn't know? No, I, I, you were the first person I've ever heard use that. I mean, I could, I could divine the meaning, but I needed yes. to check to make sure it was a real word and not something you were making up. Well, you are, you are obviously full of a lot of masculine energy in a way that I think would surprise most people. Um, <laughs> yeah, really? I, have, I do have a lot of body hair. Does that count? Mm. Does that make you a bear? You know what a bear is, John? I know what a bear is. A bear is not technically a furry. Yeah, I am aware. Do you want to send you a Venn diagram? They, they, come, by, they come by it honestly. Right? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> I have different colors of skin always. <laughs> this cannot be like... I, I feel bad making <laughs> these references, but like it, because of the timing of my normal listening schedule, you probably when, just listen to it. Yeah, when we record, usually I have just finished uh, an episode of another one of your programs that airs on another network. Yeah, and then it's fresh in my mind, and you're the guy I was just listening to. <laughs> How can I not? All right, anyway, John Roderick puts images in a person's head. He's uh, he's he's the radio. That was of the you. Mind. That was you with the different. No, colors. that was mostly John. It was you. I was moderating. No, that one was all... He he said it and didn't realize it, and you started snickering. And yeah, Anyway. So, because you have a family and uh-huh. a career, yeah. and you're a church-going man, nope. I am going to give you a, a long, hard pass on on the fact that you are obviously a complete horn dog. I'm going to give you a pass on that. And more, as compared to... Wait. As compared to what? As compared to you? As compared to the average a eunuch, person? A eunuch like me. I, you, I used to be a horn dog. Everyone, for the past week, every time someone mentioned pencil skirt, you went into a trance for five seconds. You're telling me I'm the... That's a, that's a, that's a good look. It's a good... That's a strong no, look. No, I agree. I'm just saying, like, how is it... I, I feel like I am not prone to the same outbursts as you are. <sighs> you Look, you are a family man. You're a church-going man. <laughs> no. I'm going to give you a long, hard phallic pass because i i don't want to disrupt the house of cards that your life is but yeah, well, where, where do you think this family came from hmm? am i right <laughs> up here all right yeah um but you know i gotta follow up on the drinking i i i, I won't listen to the last episode mm-hmm. you don't have to go into a lot of detail but you so here's what i think i know about you you don't drink at all or much at all aren't you a sprite man 
you could say at all, but it's not like uh, it's I don't not. Know. No, I'm not saying you're a Tito. I'm not saying you're like whoa, take that off the table. Right. I, I don't mean, mean I that because I, I don't like it. That's what it comes down to. Well, I'm having this wine. I found I found a bottle of wine at the house, so mm-hmm. I'm having some wine right now. Yep. But um, no, but you 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 don't make a big deal about it. But you seem like a person where alcohol doesn't have a big uh, part in your week to week life. But mm-hmm. you mentioned f- uh, w- without hemming and hawing or aw shucksing. That you had uh, had drinks in high school. Yeah, who didn't? See, well, this is layers of an onion, John Syracuse. Well, this my a, goodness. I was I was ta- discussing this with my wife just before. She was asking what we're going to talk about, and I said, "Well, we've got this drugs topic that we never do. That we probably people are also clamoring. Want, They're dying for drugs. That we pro- we'll get to it someday. Uh, probably not today, but uh, but then we were talking about drinking. I'm like, well, that would be in the drugs episode, wouldn't it? And I realized a lot of other people wouldn't file it there. Like they would be like, there's drinking and then there's drugs, but. I would file it in the same category. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I thought something like the opposite, where where I'm guessing I'm guessing I'm guessing that for you, alcohol is more like say hockey, where like if you got invited, you'd go, but you're not going to make time for it every week. It's more like uh, I don't know fish that I don't. I mean, I'm not against fish. But F- I don't fish with a with a pH. N- no, like the like the category of food, the little swimmy things. That oh, I'm, you don't like fish? No, I mean I eat a, a couple of varieties of things from the sea, but most fish I just don't like. I'm not against them, but I would never order them in a restaurant because I don't like how they taste. So same thing with alcohol. Okay. So were you the instigator or were you the follow along guy? Were you in a basement? Like oh, what were drinking? You? No, it was, it was just it was at parties, and I was definitely following along. Okay. So like right, everyone else right. was doing it. There was beer there or whatever other things they would have. And how do you know whether you like it or not? You only know, as I tell my children repeatedly, you have to try it. And, <laughs> and as I tell How do you them, know you don't want to be a juggalo? And, and, had, and there's a different kind. I mean, I, I drank enough to have preferences for different kinds of beer, but we never didn't have any actual like what today's uh, hipsters would call good beer. We had, you know, beer from the gas station where they wouldn't card you. Uh, right, right. So right. it's not, you know, so it's not high quality stuff. And in my, uh, you know, my legal drinking times, I've had various kinds of wine enough to know that they don't appeal to me to the degree that I want to do anything with them except for cook with them, which I do. That's why we have bottles of wine in the house. They're just for cooking. Um, and okay. that's about it. And it's not, it's not a, uh, it's not an important part of uh, my life at all, but it's not, you know, but I, the reason I dr- lump it in with drugs is because it's all kind of at the same time when you're learning about that and when your peers are doing it and everything. I don't know. I mean, because to me, there's at least a couple axes to this. I mean, one of them is the just the there's the well, several axes. There's the this is a grown up thing for grown ups, and me doing this must make me more grown up. There's a certain age where, like for me, that was smoking. Uh, at a certain age, when I knew I definitely should not be smoking, um, you get into something like alcohol. That feels like a very social. Um, I hate to use the word peer pressure, but where there's a kind of a proving sort of thing where you're like, even if you if you have no drink at all, like you're not going to fit in. If you have one beer, like that's cool, as long as you're like in on the game. When you get into the pots and beyond, that feels more like a little bit of a journey to me. And maybe that's different today, but back back in the day when like you know you could go to a jail go to jail for a real long time for drugs. It was one thing to have alcohol, but you know having any kind of drugs was much more. A much more dangerous idea when I was younger. So I don't know. I guess you, you could. It depends on how you think of it. If you think of it like ooh, like bad stuff churches don't want you to do, or more like because you know it's it's I don't know it's real different. If the fact that alcohol is so pervasive as so many people say nowadays is what makes it so dangerous. 
Yeah, but, I think it really depends on the environment you grew up in. Uh, that the lines that you were just drawing there, because those those lines felt very different for for me when I was growing up. Like, I don't think any of my friends cared who drank. Like, even even early on, the, the circle that I was traveling in, no no one was judging you if you did. Because eventually, I at the very least, I didn't drink as much as everyone else, and eventually, I just wasn't really into it at all. No one cared, really. Like, that's the least of anyone's concern. There was not a lot of, you know. And and again, why did you do it in the first place? It was everyone else was doing it. How do you know whether you like it if you don't do it? Yep. Right. So you got to try it. Right. I mean, all right. All right. So so then, general question, uh, and I'll leave it at this. Um, when did you first experiment with it? Ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade. Like when did you first experiment with it? And when did you finally go? Mm, this is really probably mostly not for me. Probably ninth grade, like the first like Whoa. high school party. You know, like have a have a beer or something. Yeah, or part of one because it was gross. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I still don't like beer. Um, and, yeah, when I decided it wasn't, by, by senior year, there was the same drinks at the parties, and I was just like, you know what, never mind. All right. I'll allow it. We will, we will, we will delve more into this when we talk about drugs and other things. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Casper. You can learn more about Casper right now by going to casper.com slash diffs. That's D-I-F-F-S. That is the short name for our show. And if you haven't heard about it already, you gotta, you got to know about this. This is Casper. Casper is an online retailer. They make premium mattresses that you are going to get for a fraction of the price of what you'll find in stores. They are revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms. They pass that savings directly on to you, the sleep-desiring consumer. This is a high-quality, beautifully engineered mattress. It provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. You see, Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a new kind of hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. These two technologies come together for a terrific night's sleep. they got just the right sink and just the right bounce. An obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. I know you're thinking, oh, oh, oh if I want a mattress, i got to go to one of those uh, stores at the mall. Or out by uh, out by by the uh, the old mall, and I got to go lay on this disgusting mattress that a bunch of people have already laid on. And then when I get it, I'm going to have to pay what like a, a thousand, two thousand dollars for a mattress. It, it's 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 ponderous. Mm-mm, ain't going to get that with Casper, buddy. Casper mattresses they start at five hundred dollars for a twin size, seven fifty for full, eight fifty queen. I say go all the way, blow it out, nine fifty for a king size mattress that is still less than you're going to pay for one of those disgusting mattresses that you buy in a store. And obviously, this is, this is a, it's a piece of art. It's the best. And you know what? Turns out, made in America. Now, you're saying to yourself, uh, eh, that seems kind of weird. Do I really want to listen to some podcast guy who says I should buy a mattress on the internet? That seems kind of odd. Casper understands this. And that's why buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free. They offer free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. It's that simple. They understand the importance of trying out this mattress. They, you, this thing arrives at your house in a box. You carry it up the steps yourself like a person, and it's, uh, it's just the best. I've had mine for over a year, and I love it to death, and I love how easy this company is to deal with. They are just the best. you gotta, you got to try this out. Casper.com slash diffs. I should let you know that uh, terms and conditions apply, but, but you know, as you know, that applies to so many things in life. But here's the thing. Because you are a listener to Reconcilable Differences, you're going to get $50 toward the purchase of your Casper mattress when you go to casper.com slash diffs and you use the self-similar special offer code diffs, D-I-F-F-S, $50 off. Just go get one. Just go get one. Just trust me. Trust me. It's your old pal Merlin. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. 
Um, we have a little bit of follow-up. I noticed you put something here about acceleration times for manual versus automatic transmissions. Oh, being, look at you being Casey-less. Um, hmm. Wow. So, yeah. Is that how it's going to be? What do you mean? Is that, is that an insult? It's, it's not, yeah. That's, that's, all right. Anyway. Huh, I mean, I, I've been doing this for a while now. All right. Um, I put this in there. Just This show barely has follow-up, right? Uh, but I was listening to last... Uh, the last episode uh, yeah. as I do and I heard myself say something totally wrong and it's not like I mumbled it or you could have misheard it it was just very clearly spoken and wrong oh, I hate that right and I'm like oh god you know here comes uh, here come all the corrections like I'm just gonna have to deal with another couple weeks of people tweeting at me that I got this thing wrong and nobody said anything so it's one of the rare opportunities that nobody has corrected me I get to be the first. Doesn't one. that worry you a little bit? Doesn't that make you worry? Well, that makes listening? me. That lets me know that people listening to, this sh- to our show have n- know nothing about cars. <laughs> well, I said, I said, I said, Rick Remender uh, wrote Captain America. I was covered with shame, and it was an entire week, and nobody said anything to me. Yeah, I don't know who. Ed Brubaker. Anyway, the, what I said, uh, I, what I was trying to explain, and what I heard in my own head as I spoke it was I was trying to explain that when I was young reading car magazines, the manual transmission car always had better acceleration times slightly than the automatic. And then in the modern day, uh, the automated manual transmission car has faster acceleration times than the uh, the plain old manual. So it's Because a, a, robot, a robot can think faster and it won't. Right, right. In the yeah. old days, the human could do it and the, the automatic transmission with a torque converter and, and not holding gears long enough and all sorts of other things and not being able to get offline the, the days before launch control and those other things, the human would win. So it was like, aha, stick shift. You get that because you have more control over the car and actually you can go, you, you know, you're, you'll be a little bit quicker if you're any good at it than someone who just pushes their first all the way to the floor in an automatic uh, and then that had reversed. It was so strange because I'd grown up the, indoctrinated with this, like, oh, manuals are always faster, and now it's, it's the exact opposite. Anyway, what I said was that when I was a kid, automatics were always faster, which is nonsensical, and sometimes you misspeak, and I, oh, am, yeah. and I am the first person to catch myself. Thank God nobody <sighs> caught, uh, except for myself, the mistake I made when we talked about celebrities. I'm not going to bring that one up again. Maybe, or maybe one other person. One person. On no, Twitter we probably. we got a toot. We got a toot. I feel terrible about it, and it's just going to sit there. And you know, she'll listen one day and she'll hear it. She won't. Though. I'm fine with that. But I just, you know, brain fart. <laughs> I was. I really wanted to meet him, and then I heard that. <laughs> <clears throat> You'll be like, good. Right. Oh, oh, speaking of that, did you yeah. see? A lot of people sent me the thing from Community. Did you watch that? Uh, that was very funny. I don't. I do not watch that show. But that was. It's a, a, that you know, was it's. I, I. It's a. It's a. It's a funny show. I. Uh, I had avoided it for a while, but uh, it's actually – it's got the charm of something like Parks and Rec. Like the characters are really funny. Yeah, and so what, what happened? Somebody did, did a Syracuse. They basically introduced – or like caused this celebrity to be aware of this fan, and it didn't go well. Yeah, he, he, uh, he was a fan of LeVar Burton, and then they had LeVar Burton on the show, and they show various scenes of him meeting LeVar Burton, and he does not know what to do. And at a certain point, he's just screaming along the room, I told you I could never meet LeVar Burton, which is – yeah, that's a, <laughs> so it just shows that uh, – uh, I'm not the only one with these feelings. I thought it was really funny. And although although I want to say, like, having listened to that show, I, th- I don't think I've clearly articulated my uh, my not meeting people position. Like, it was implied, but just, just to clarify it better, the whole idea is not that you can never meet them, like, like on that community episode. The idea is you don't want to meet them in that context, because it seems like a no-win scenario. You right. want to meet them in a context on a level playing field. Whatever you've got to do to level that playing field. So just meet. We're not meeting like that. I'm not meeting you. You're not meeting me. We just happen to be in the same place, and we're just two people, right? To get the con- get all of the uncomfortable context out 
and then just meet uh as equals in other words it's not that impossible you're never going to meet bono as an equal it's fine right but for for people who are closer to your level it is conceivable and so what you're trying to avoid is ever meeting them in the context in in the crazy unbalanced context like you don't want to go backstage after their big show because that is not a level playing field no that's that's true um, I think you also wanted to, let me check here, apologize profusely for leaving the impression that I was some kind of empty soul uh, star f***er. Is that a thing you wanted to do here? No, I never made, that's all you. That's all you're bringing That's me, that, I'm imagining you're, that. You're bringing that uh, yourself. This is your, your worst fear is in you're manifesting them. You think I'm manifesting them? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. If you, if you want to, you can go ahead and, you can go ahead and apologize for that if you want. <laughs> I didn't say that. You okay. said that about yourself. Maybe you would apologize. You to said your, that. You said that. You said you apologize to yourself. You apologize learning to, yourself. to love yourself, Merlin. Oh, I love a lot of people, John. The but greatest. I'm, I, ain't, <laughs> I ain't never going to be of, on that list. Of all, I believe that children are our future. Okay, I'll give you a pass on the uh, the drinking. We got the follow up. Um, what is your T bone thing there? You know, we were talking about our experiences. You know, it's actually it's. I, I I just wanted to mention uh, with regard to automobiles and accidents that I was actually in two really bad accidents where I was not the driver, but that really put the fear in me. And I I don't know I don't know uh, they're not I don't know if they're worth mentioning, but like you know we talked about like the accidents we were in, the accidents we caused, and stuff like that. But I was in two accidents where I probably should have died when I was what thirteen and nineteen. So good, do tell. Well, I know it was just it was just it was one of those dumb experiences where like my mom and I, maybe my grandmother, but I think my mom and I were in Tampa. We'd driven to Tampa to do something. Just you know, like forty five minutes from our house and it was this dumbest thing in the world. It was a rainy day. This is not a very interesting story. But but we was a rainy day and my mom stopped short and just barely like kissed somebody's car like near the intersection of this very busy intersection. And this person was furious. They were freaking out. They're like, we're going to call the police. There's going to be reports. And they wouldn't let, they refused to move their car. And they strongly discouraged my mom from moving her car. And so we sat in the car in the rain, just basically waiting to get hit. And we did. We totally got hit at like 35 miles an hour. We got hit right in the side. And the car spun and spun. And it was like one of the scariest moments of my entire life. Wait, wait, wait. So you got, you got into a little fender bender in the intersection. You're like in the middle of the intersection then, I guess, at this point? I'm trying to remember what exactly happened. We were close enough that in the rain with confusion and the lights changing, like somebody would not have anticipated that some dumbass would have their car in the middle of the road. We were enough exposed in the road that at this busy multi-turn intersection, somebody hit us going pretty fast. So, but your alternative there was to ignore the guy and what, drive away or just walk away from the car? Pull, Pull off to the side, right? I mean, if there hasn't been an injury, isn't that generally the conventional wisdom is you just pull off the road and wait for the police? Yeah, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, so you, you, you got hit from the side and what, just spun the car around and you were in the, the front seat or back seat? Probably in the, fr- I th- feel like I was in the back seat, so it must be my grandmother was there, but it was really, really scary. I mean, when you're, it's, you know, you know, when people talk about how a moment happens and it feels like it took a very, very, very long time, even though it was only like a, a couple seconds, that's my canonical example of that, where it felt like the car was going for like, like three minutes. And how old were you then? Probably 13. And we weren't injured, I don't think. I think maybe somebody in the car got a little banged up, but we were actually surprisingly fine. Then another time, a Domino's pizza driver, back in the day of the 30 minutes where it's free era, <laughs> uh, blew through like a T. You know, like you got a, um, you know, you got a stop sign, you got a, a road that has the right of way. Mm-hmm. My friend Alan was driving, 
his uh, 72-ish Nova with like five or six of us in it. He had the right of way. And this Domino's driver totally blew through the stop sign and, again, sent us spinning. I, I, I mentioned that because, like, it's – I don't know. It's – um I don't know. I don't know why I mentioned it. It's just that it, that does end up in the same way that your three accidents you had in fairly tight clusters in high school had this impact on the safety of your driving. Like, I think that's part of it too. Is like, I have that, I still feel like I have that sense memory of getting hit and like feeling like I was going to die and then not dying. I think that, I think that still has an impact on how I think about cars in general. It kind of punctures the air of invulnerability that you naturally have as a stupid teenager driving a car because can watch all the videos you want but once it actually happens to you like oh oh that's this is a thing that actually happened to people like me and then i, I think the the bonus you get is uh a spidey sense uh, about when the camera is positioned in such a way in a, in a, tel- a television show or a movie that you know they're about to show an accident from the perspective right. of the interior of the car oh like the smash of like you see somebody like super tight inside the cabin of the car and you see the street in like bouquet behind them, like and you're like, oh, they're, they're totally going to get hit by yep, a car. Yep, no, yeah, right, it doesn't exactly. have to be tight. It can be back a little bit. Yeah, exactly like that. I, you know, I mean, you can just get that from watching a lot of television, but you tense up <laughs> a little bit right. more when you've actually had it happen to you because what they're trying to recreate is what it's like. You're just la di da driving along, and then all of a sudden, movement and sound that you are not familiar with that is unexpected and out of the ordinary happens. And yeah, well, yeah, and it, it kind of relates to our topic in some ways. Like, uh, you know, w- what makes something so disruptive? Well, being the, the topic being if we end up talking about humor, you know, what makes humor humor in some ways, it's something surprising. Like you, you thought you understood what was going to happen and then something unexpected happened. That's, you know, that's a very general way of thinking about what makes something funny. The humor comes out of the disparity between like what you thought was going to happen, what did happen. And then there's a million ways that that can bloom. But that's the thing is when you, you know, you've driven, like in my case, I'd driven that turn so many times. And then that one day, this one thing went different. And, you know, that was such a huge deal. But yeah, I mean, I still drove like an idiot sometimes. It's really like it took 25 years for that those lessons to sink in. Well, yeah, until, until your brain finishes forming around age 25 or something. It's not done. It's, yeah, it's, you still got a big soft middle. Right. So you got to wait for that to all settle down. But then all your past experience can, can come forward and uh, find a permanent home in your hopefully now completely functional brain. Mm. Uh, last car question. What happened to cars? Like when I was a kid, you talked about manual versus automatic. We always had automatic. And, you know, in the cars that I would always drive, if you... You know, you think of like a regular old consumer car, like not a sports car, not a muscle car. But, you know, with most cars, if you floored it, like if you just mashed it, right, like it would take a minute to kind of like go, and then like it would, you know, start going. But like even that Mazda, even that protege that I wrecked, it if I if I hit that really fast, circa 1992, that thing would just start flying. Is that fuel injection? That's not turbo. <laughs> what what no. is it they did with cars that suddenly cars got, got so much pickup, even in little cars? Even little cars today have so much pickup. What is different? There's two things. The first thing is uh, if, if you were to graph the, uh, the horsepower uh, available in any kind of car, you want to do average of all cars, cars in a certain size class, cars at a certain price or whatever, uh, for many, many years, basically during our entire life, the amount of horsepower in any car, you know, at any price point or any classic car or whatever, has just gone up tremendously. These days, like, I think you can get a Honda Accord with as much horsepower as like a Ferrari from the 60s, right? Wow. Tremendous amount of horsepower. Because technology marches on, and what most car makers have used, you know, especially up until very recently, have done with that technology is given cars more power. 
Um, and yes, they've been, you know, increased fuel mileage and everything too, but power cells, you can, you know, like, and it's not, it's not completely obscene, but cars have gotten more powerful. Now they've also gotten way, way heavier. So depending on the class of car, you have well, to well, look. Cars have gotten heavier. Oh yeah. Yeah. Huh. Um, that's, that's a general trend, uh, in, you know, from safety, uh, materials and just, you know, like they, that will probably start to reverse a little bit, but for most of our life, like the lament of the car enthusiast is, boy, I'm really into BMWs and I really love the BMW three series. And if you graph the weight of the BMW three series, it just goes up and up and up and up and up. That's now, what I'm looking for. Would you, you call it curb weight? Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah. Yeah. So look at like the BMW 2001 versus like last year's, uh, BMW three series. Or, I mean, they're trying to reverse it, but like the, I think the current generation M3, they're like, Oh, we'll use more carbon fiber and try to like, now it's seen as, as an achievement. If the next generation car matches the weight of the previous one, it's like, wow, they really, you know, they really held the line or it's like under it by, you know, 10 or 15 pounds. Um, but cars just got fatter. The cars also got bigger. That's the other thing that happened. They have more room on the inside. They got bigger, they get heavier, and they get more horsepower. Um, but the second thing I think you're sensing there, aside from the fact that your Mazda Protégé probably has as much horsepower as a giant American boat of a car from the uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, is when you push the pedal and nothing happens, there's two possibilities. One, your car has no power, but much more likely, two, your car is in the wrong gear. And so a combination of that, not a lot of power, and it's in too high of a gear, it's not going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it, modern automatic transmissions and automated manuals are much better about sensing that you want to go fast now and re- realizing it in downshift. Like the old ones had like a, one sort of a, an on-off sensor at the very depth of the pedal travel that would realize you want to downshift and they would you know do a downshift. But modern cars are much better, even automatics, much better about figuring out, oh, you want to go now, let me downshift two gears really fast for you. So the uh, horsepower that your motor does have can actually get the car moving. Um, so that's probably, I would imagine, what it is you're feeling. Increased horsepower and better transmissions that are better able to pick a gear that will actually make your still slightly underpowered compared to a sports car car move uh, at a clip. And then I guess the final one is the arrival of much higher RPM engines in like, you know, from the Japanese engines and economy cars where those things, those uh, engines don't have a lot of horsepower compared to like a sports car or muscle car or even like a big truck or something but they might have a red line that's like 7500 8000 rpm and you get those engines up into the six seven eight thousand rpm even a pathetic 90 horsepower honda civic motor at the very high top of the rev range in like first gear all of a sudden it starts to go somewhere and then you run out of revs and you got to shift and then it goes back to being a slow car but okay. that, that's another possibility so wow those three things could be a factor here but yeah if you're interested in car weights just look at uh they don't make the mazda protege anymore the mazda miata is the other one that people laud because they're like oh it, you know they've they've not made it that much heavier over the years it's still very small and still very light unlike pretty much every other kind of car if you just look at like honda accord i mean honda car went honda accord went up in the in in uh, thing it used to be like a, a mid-size car and then it became a full-size car like so the car got bigger it got heavier and it just keeps doing so well thank you i am satisfied with my care that actually uh, was a great answer. Oh, uh, final bit of follow-up. Did you want to talk more about your libido? <laughs> Not with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, John, if you were going to talk about your libido, <laughs> who would you want to? Would, you, would, would that be with a with a with a brony or a furry or an ASMR person? I, like, I, th- you, I think you're projecting again. You think <laughs> you're you're projecting? <laughs> um, we got a weird topic tonight. Uh kind of suggested by a listener no not kind of it was suggested by a listener and i think it's a great topic yeah i I agree that's why we're talking about it oh okay 
you're not very good at this, are you? Mm-hmm. Um, we'll listener, Kurt, <laughs> listener Kurt, uh, says, uh, Hey, can you guys do, can you guys do an episode about the Simpsons and other things that have shaped your sense of humor? And I said, uh, well, I don't know if I want to do a whole episode about the Simpsons, but, uh, cause this was, you know, Frankiac has changed the game for everybody. Now that we have a way to be able to go and not just post our, we should probably explain what that is, but there's been a lot of Frankiac going around and, uh, I love his idea of talking about humor. Cause I, I, it's. Uh, I think it'd be very interesting to talk about like how we got our sense of humor, what we what we have found funny in the past, and how we got how we are with that. Yeah, you put a whole bunch of notes in here for uh, just for my presumably own. for your own benefit to keep yeah. track. But then I realize because you're such an old man and because I'm so young and vibrant that yeah. my influences may actually you're so be... libidinal. You're still so so full of energy, <laughs> like a juggalo. <laughs> my my influences may end up being much more different than yours than I than I would have imagined. Um, but hmm. that that could anyway. You should start because you you start before I was even born because you're so old. That's true. That's a really really good point. Um, it's gonna be fun to do the show with you in a few years when your libido's calmed down a little bit. When you can really just take it down a couple. You, notches. You, your idea that you have any gauge on my libido is not founded. Your reality. idea. Your idea. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I just thought it was funny because um, you know it. Um, Comedy and humor are notoriously difficult to talk about because you end up because you know if you talk about comedy and humor, it's probably because you're a fan of comedy and humor, and it frequently just devolves <laughs> into doing bits and stuff like that. But I'm very interested in in what people find funny and how they how they got there. What angle do you want to take? I say start with your start with your earliest influences. Like I'll jump in once you catch up to the time when I'm alive. Okay. All right. And that's what, like, like ninety five, something yeah, like yeah. that. Right. No, I'm laying around. Bam, 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 I guess I'm trying to think. Like, I would not want to discount stuff like children's books and Saturday morning TV shows. But like, I'm trying to think of like what really, you know, stuff that would be funny because you know somebody fell down or something. But like, I'm trying to think of the stuff that was really formative for me, and a huge one would have to be my dad. Who was a really, really terrific guy, and just and everybody loved my dad. He was just, he he was very, very funny. He was always the life of the party, and uh, just a, a great guy. But all, just also also very funny. He liked funny stuff, and he was a naturally very funny person who could who was not afraid to do like silly stuff for a laugh. And um, one reason I'm thinking about this though is that so my dad was born in 1929, and he grew up uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, with stuff like, you know, with the, with the comedy of the time, which would be like, you know, movies. He was a huge fan of the Marx Brothers. He was even a huger fan, believe it or not, of the Marx Brothers ripoff, the uh, the Ritz Brothers. He loved them, too. He loved all that stuff. He loved Abin Costello. He enjoyed all that stuff. But one reason I, I think it's interesting is my dad was, uh, for, a, for a pretty good while, in radio in Cincinnati. He did some on-air stuff, but he mostly worked in what was called traffic, which is not about cars. It was about basically... Uh, timing and like you would be the the person who did traffic you would do some announcing and maybe a little engineering stuff like with the you know the dials but mostly what you would do is make sure that all the ads were the right amount of time and you knew how how this hour was going to start and end does, does that make sense mm-hmm. but you know that was in the in the radio industry and for for several years and so he knew lots of people who were in radio as talent uh, and in uh, the behind the scenes stuff but like I, I get the feeling I, I can't I'd have to ask my mom about this, but I get the feeling that they're, you know, you think about like behind the scenes, like 
you know, the, the guys who work at the newspaper together going out and having drinks, right? Or, or the people, you know, who work together at uh, even teachers going out and that kind of shop talk. I think they're the, the people who work in radio, there's a certain kind of type and there's a certain kind of sort of ribald sense of humor. There's a lot of passing around of tapes and things like that. Even even back in the '60s, like you would, you know, you think about all the stuff that like became kind of famous in my circles in like the '90s. Stuff like celebrities at their worst, you know, hearing all the like or like prank call tapes and stuff like that. The days before morning zoos, that was all still stuff that would get passed around regionally within radio networks. I'm pretty sure. So my dad had a pretty sharp sense of humor, a very silly sense of humor, um, and I think that had a huge impact on me. Um, is would be one of the earliest ones. Did you so, listen to those tapes? Did are you just you were basing it off? He those are influencing him, and he's influencing you. Yeah, good question. And I I'm trying to remember because we had a Zenith cassette recorder from a very young age where I would do radio shows and interview people and stuff like that when I was like five. But most of the we so all the cassettes that we had the audio cassettes that we had for me were mostly things like Sesame Street or you know like a blank tape that we'd use over and over. Our family was in uh, in eight tracks, so for listening at home, it would be eight tracks. But this was also, I'm speculating here, but this was also a time when a person had a work life and a person had a home life. And I don't think dad brought a lot of the saltiest stuff home. I think he would, there was some stuff that would come around, I imagine probably on reel to reel, that, you know, probably got passed around. But it was partly that, like, I I feel like, so what am I trying to get out here? I'm trying to get at, yes, that sensibility of... Uh, of enjoying not just off-color stuff, but just weird stuff. My my dad liked really like odd humor, not not the obvious jokes and stuff like that. And he liked he liked absurdity. And I think that really, I mean, like for example, like my daughter, it's it's makes me so happy when my daughter wants to watch Duck Soup by the Marx Brothers, which is one of my absolute all-time favorite movies. It happens to be one of her favorite movies, and we'll just be walking around and just start talking about Duck Soup, which is a movie I first saw when I was very very young. And Duck Soup, I think, has had a, like the Marx Brothers in general, has had a, uh, a, like a direct and, ex- and indirect huge effect on not just me, but all the people that I found funny, too. So a lot of it goes back to that era and that kind of, you know, that kind of like wackadoodle absurdist humor. Um, so I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to get at with my dad. I, that, I think his influence had a huge effect on me. And just the fact, like, I still make silly faces for my kid the way my dad made silly faces for me and I and I and I still think it's funny. And so and then you know I can go further from that but I think that's the earliest stuff. And so he would bring stuff home like god I put in this YouTube link. He he would sometimes get stuff I think from the office that was basically like the equivalent of what we would now think of as like uh like in the 80s we would call it a morning zoo. You know like crazy ira in the douche kind of stuff. Don't don't watch that. It's terrible. Th- that is from a terrible, terrible comedy album called Hudson and Landry Losing Their Heads. And I think there are these two DJs that would do these skits that are so offensive and <laughs> so bad, but they had a huge impact, which gets us to one of the tent poles that I want to make sure to talk about with you. You've talked about this a lot with especially English humor, where like you don't have to understand something for it to be funny. And in fact, having there be parts of it that you don't understand makes it funnier. Is, is a thing I've thought about a lot. So that's the, that's the beginning for me. And then I have lots more after that, but I think the very earliest stuff was really stuff... If, you're, if, you, if I would watch TV, like watch Ed Sullivan with my dad, and he laughed, I would laugh. 
The same way that now, like I read my daughter a James Thurber story that I think is funny, and she laughs because she can tell how much I'm enjoying it. And I think that's that's very hereditary. Yeah, I was going to ask about that based on, uh, you probably don't remember, I certainly don't for myself, but something I noticed with my own kids. I mean, so obviously, yeah, kid, kids all do this with their parents. If, they, if they're if they enjoying any kind of media with their parents, and the parents laugh, the kids laugh, because that's just how kids are, because they do what you do. And because you find it funny, they find it funnier. Like you are unknowingly or knowingly shaping their future. They will have memories of that thing being funny, and they don't realize that the only reason they think it's funny is because their mom or dad laughed at it. But that's that's what growing up is like, right? Well, that album, the, that album uh, to which I, I pointed you to a track from that album, like, I did not understand. I, I mean, I, I understood that there was one guy who would do a drunk. Because, you know, comic drunks were like a thing when I was a kid, mm-hmm. like Foster Brooks type bits. So, I mean, I understood this guy's supposed to be drunk. This guy's supposed to be gay. Or, you know, what I would know to be, you know, he's a Paul Lynn type, I would think in my head, not knowing exactly what that meant. But I could tell he was like supposed to be like, as we would say, a sissy. And this guy's obviously supposed to be a tough guy. This supposed to be guy's supposed to be a redneck. And I would I could like infer humor, even when I didn't understand the whole thing to where I could recite these routines to you beat for beat the entire thing, because I'd heard this thing dozens, this terrible album, dozens of times. And I didn't always know it was funny, but it made me laugh because it made me laugh. What I was going to ask about yourself and because I noted in my kids is it was, I mean, my kids are my kids, so they're going to end up being a little weird. So maybe this is just me, but it was a long time before I noticed my children listening to or watching anything and actually laughing out loud. Like there's no one else in the room, no parent, you know, parents are essentially the laugh track of kids. Like, because the laugh track laughs, then you find it funny. Right. But they're, they're on their own. Like I remember both of my kids for a very long, seemingly a very long time watching shows that they like to watch in theory on their own, whatever they happen to be, whether it's like my little pony or, uh, you know, any other word girl or any other cartoon things like they, they would want to watch them. They would ask for them. They would watch them on television. They were, some they were mostly educational, especially when they're very young. But they were they were supposed to be funny. Word, word girls fun though. That's a right. fun show. They're all supposed they have supposed to have a humor aspect, and yet my kids would not laugh out loud and would not really smile that much either. They would just sit transfixed watching the thing with those big wide eyes that little kids have when they watch television. Right, 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 right. And I remember noting it when each one of them got to the age where they would be on their own watching one of their shows that they like. And they would actually laugh out loud. And it seemed wow, to take do, do you remember a, a phenomenal, phenomenal shows? I think for my daughter, it might have been watching Full House reruns. Um, <laughs> wow. Which I can't believe it still exists, but they do. Um, and for my son, I don't know. It might have, I mean, I can't think of what the particular show was. It might have been Adventure Time. It might have been, might have even been Clone Wars or something. But like, my son, he's a very reserved person, so I can imagine him like laughing internally for much before that. My daughter, uh, not so much, but yeah, like, and I think about when I was young, uh, you know, single, uh, low single digit ages, and watching things that I thought were funny. Was I sitting there stone faced? I was probably was. I was probably sitting there stone faced like my son, but internally I thought they were funny, but I wasn't like laughing out loud. Just be, but the, you, yeah, it doesn't mean you're not entertained. It's just that I know what you mean though. Like there, it, it's the stuff that makes my daughter bust a gut laughing is it's it's all horrible it with the exception of some things like like she will laugh really loud while, while we're watching parks and rec or again something like duck soup but those stupid disney shows like those like mm-hmm. dog with a blog shows yeah, if we yeah. watch that on a plane she, that is all she wants to watch the entire time she's got headphones on and she is laughing uproariously the entire time now speaking of of like the, the, the i'm trying to think about what the earliest thing i can remember being funny I 
I kind of have my first humor based memories are Saturday morning cartoons, watching Saturday morning cartoons and not thinking Saturday morning cartoons and just like daytime TV cartoons like Tom and Jerry, like that stuff. And mostly being angry about how not funny they were. In the same way that I was so angry about toys not looking like what the the TV shows were supposed to look like when I got older. Right, like, right, right. It was like Saturday morning cartoons, and they were the only thing on, and they were just so... Like the Hanna-Barbera stuff, I would just found them just so dumb. And it's like... And I had, you know... the But you're like, well, it's Saturday morning cartoons, and there's like one of them that I like, some weird... But uh, even then, it was like comfort food to me. I mean, it wasn't... It, I didn't watch that for laughs, you're right, though. But, I, I mean, the, I don't think I, I would laugh up. I mean, Bugs Bunny. I laughed at Bugs Bunny. Yeah, like the was, good, the good, uh, you know, Looney Tunes things. Like I recognized that you were at a different level when you're doing the 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 Barber of Seville, whatever the, uh, the is it called the the Bunny of Seville, the Rabbit of Seville. Right. You know. Anyway. Yeah. Like I recognized that as a as a higher class of things. I mean, that came on. That was exciting, and you sat up or whatever, and and that was funny. But Tom and Jerry was just garbage, and like Popeye was garbage. Heckle and Jekyll was garbage. Most of the Hanna Barbera things. Yeah, like you know, all of the the, the silly Hanna Barbera shows, the Flintstones, just so terrible. And but that's all that was on. But you just watch it and watch it, and hoping you know because Battle of the Planets was going to be on. That was a show you were actually interested in. But I was aware of it as comedy. I was aware that it was supposed to be funny. And you'd be like, I nah, said so you'd do like a half smile. But it's like I wish there was. I wish there was something better. Um, and so I guess at that point. I wasn't really. I I was probably not laughing while sitting in front of the television either. If my parents were to watch me, they're like, "Oh, every Saturday he goes down there and he wants to watch Saturday morning cartoons, and he just sits there in front of the TV with no expression on his face for three and a half hours." Um, and that's probably <laughs> accurate. Uh, but I, I don't know. I was I was waiting for something. I didn't have any experience with comedy radio, and my parents weren't uh, yuck yuck jokesters any more than uh, regular parents on of like jingling keys in front of their baby and stuff like that. So. I think, uh, yeah, th- those are my those are my earliest non comedy uh, related memories. And then the next item you have in here that we we, we finally have a shared experience is seventy uh, sitcoms, which mm-hmm. I may have watched when they were in reruns, but I think we probably watched all the same ones. And I had the same feeling about them. Happy Days. Why is Happy Days always on? It's not funny. It's not. It, uh, Laverne and Shirley had some... had its moments. Laverne but like, what about more? What about Mork and Mindy? Eh, I knew what they were going for, but Robin Williams was kind of grating. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. We ever into? I'm trying to think of like the the the, there were the CBS shows from when I was you know my daughter's age. I think about you know there was the classic like was it Tuesdays later Saturdays like All in the Family, uh, Newhart Bob Newhart, uh, Rhoda and Mary Tyler Moore. That's a little before your time, right? Now All in the Family, I I understood that I did not understand it. Yeah. I, I knew something was going on in All Understanding, but I could not for the life of me figure it out. It made me uncomfortable because there was so much stuff that I know. Like, I think, I, I, you know, there's that, there should be a name for this with little kids. Like, whether that's the, the rape episode or the, or the uh, menopause episode, there would be a very special episode about something. And yeah. all I knew was it was something I was not supposed to know about, and I didn't want to know what it was. Well, the stupid uh, pedophilia episode of Different Strokes. I knew what that was about. And it would... Oh, right. That was, that was, there was like, well, there was, what was the one was the, there was a very special drugs episode. Was that Facts of Life or Different Strokes? I think they both had very special Wasn't that like a Nancy, didn't Nancy Reagan go on one time? Probably. That sounds like a thing that might have No, happened. but those shows, those shows were just like, those are just a larf. Like, I would just watch those because they were silly. But like, for example, even a show that I, where I didn't understand, I was, 
I'll tell you where it was for me. I'll tell you where, what was in the pocket for me was Barney Miller, which was over my head, but just a little bit. So like, you know, all the humor about sex workers or hookers, as we <laughs> called them then. Like I got a basic idea that this lady was doing a sexy thing for money. Or like, you know, but the characters were so great and the characters were so well formed that even when I didn't understand what was going on, even when I didn't know what a hemorrhoid was, fish was funny. You know what I mean? Or, uh, you know, and the fact you could tell like Harris was always a snappy dresser. Why do I remember their names? Wojo was a little <laughs> dim, but he had a good heart. And then they brought in that inspector. Remember the inspector guy, the boss guy with the hat? I hated Barney Miller so much. You are, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, really? I was too young for it. Like, I mean, it was like yeah. All in the Family. Like, All in the Family, I sensed there was something there. It was but I grim. didn't get it. And Barney Miller was just, it was just over my head. Like, it was ugly, too. It was just, the, the, I watched one the other night. I was flipping around our dumb over the air antenna, and Barney Miller was on. I was like, I, f- I forgot how, how ugly, deliberately ugly this set was. For the first <laughs> season, they had more stuff. It was like one room. Well, yeah. And basically, the, fir- the first season, I, if memory serves, the uh, pilot is almost split between Barney's house when his wife was more of a... I mean, do you remember Barney having a wife? No, I do not. Exactly. It's always that one room. It's like it's like the, the, the squad room, there's the cell in that, and then there's Barney's office. And that's like the entire set. So interesting. that, And you write some of that off to being a little bit young. Yeah, because I think a lot of that was... And the only time I got... I started to appreciate it more is like I can, I can recognize when I started to see All in the Family for like the second time, the second time around, like in, in reruns. All in the Family that, has not aged well at all. Th- then at least I understood what the things was about. And same thing with Laverne and Shirley... I think Laverne and Shirley was closest to starting to, because I watch things like, you know, those I Love Lucy reruns and stuff like that. And I Love Lucy right. is like slapstick and you can get it. It's not a big deal. But like, I think when Laverne and Shirley started to wrap around, I think, because what we're getting at here is eventually up to, for me anyway, to the comedy things that actually connected with me. And I think Laverne and Shirley came close to connecting to me, with me if only because it was like East Coast neurotic. Like there was an East Coast neurotic flavor to oh, right. Laverne and Shirley that was, you know, I mean, it's just a Penny Marshall thing or whatever, but like there was enough of that in but there. But they're like, they're like people around you. It had that Jewish Italian vibe. Right. Like it. just in the way they talk and, and the humor. Yeah, Carmine like, Ragusa. And, and, yeah. And I, I figure where, where is Laverne? It was supposed to be uh, Philadelphia. Oh, I know this. It was, no, no, no. It's, it's near, uh, near Richie's house. It's not Madison. It's, it's some, isn't it somewhere in Milwaukee? Because they work at yeah, the... Yeah, yeah, that must have been what it was. But anyway... Must be, I think it's Milwaukee because they work at the what, the Shots Brewing uh, Company. Yeah, yeah. And the, and, but the, <laughs> glad, glad I still got that sector full. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Milk and Pepsi. <laughs> Is it Schlemiel Schlemazel? Yeah, Haas and Pfeffer Incorporated. All right, yeah. We're going to do it. Yeah. Uh, I, I still see the, the glove on the bottle gag. I see the box like, exactly uh, what I just saw. As soon as I said Shots Brewery, I saw them with their, with their heads in their hands as the bottle with the right and, and they they still do that gag and you'll see it come up in various places and it's like do you realize how few people like the people who will appreciate that gag are just slowly dying anyway um <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's one that's one of the that's one of the things that, that started to connect with me a little bit in a way that the, the, the shows i was watching at the same time were not like i started to lump like facts of life different strokes silver spoons like into this bin webster of just like garbage shows that were like 70 yeah. so i guess i again it was like well, if you didn't like them why were you watching them it's just what we watched like there was no, all it's what was on so it was on and i watched every single one of them well like what are you gonna watch you're gonna watch that or what like kojak right. like there's there's not that much stuff that i mean even i watched fantasy island but i did it kind of yeah. on the sly uh-huh. because that was a grown-up show yeah that was that guy who got his face all scarred that was yeah that's the episode i remember because it was scary Oh, really? I don't remember that. It, like, he came to the island and he had been burned or something, and his, uh, like, fantasy was not 
to have people look on him and, and there was some burn face makeup. I'm sure involved. there was a twist. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mr. Mr. Rourke was a dick. <laughs> but I didn't have a midget. Do you remember how much it cost? I feel like I remember how much it cost. I, I, I should I look not. it up. Do you remember? It was probably like 1500 bucks. I have no idea though. I want to say it was $10,000. 10000 yeah. I, but I remember... An impossible amount of I, 70s money. I'd seen the pilot and I remember thinking like, oh my God, th- th- it made the show so much better. Oh, okay. So, so, er, so in section 1.1.1 under the fantasy section under cost, in the first film, it was noted that each guest had paid $50,000, about $196,000 in 2016 dollars in advance. In return to Fantasy Island, Rourke told Tattoo that he sometimes dropped the price when a guest couldn't afford the usual fee. That's nice of him. That's super nice. Because, you know, if you're going to come in and really, and really screw with somebody by giving them like the genie wish, he's a genie, basically. He's the, he's the gotcha genie. Um, Monkey paw. So let me, I, uh, not, not to put too fine a point on it, but you're 42? Uh, something like that. Close. I think I'm, I think I'm, I think I'm 41. You're 41. Okay, I think, so. think you're 41. Okay, I'll have to see how old you are then. Two, I, for, I lost six, track of my age like five or six years ago. And it's oh. really annoying with my... When do you start dropping days. decades, buddy? Oof. Yeah, I hope that won't happen. Oh, no, it'll happen where you'll go like, oh, man, I can't believe this album's been out for 20 years. Oh, my God, it's been out for 30 years. Oh, yeah, no, I do that because I can't do math in my head. But I know but that I just I, did I'm 2016 gonna, uh, minus 41. You were born in 1975. Uh, 74. Story checks out. Okay. So for you then, so I need to adjust this by... Well, but no, I can tell you the first thing that, that I connected with is not... Everything I've said so far is like these things that are on all the time that people obviously find funny that I might right. do, crack a half smile at and chuckle, but not really connected with me with the exception of possibly Laverne and Shirley because they had accents I recognized and some people on the show were neurotic. Um, but the real one that connected with me, the first, the earliest thing I remember was The Muppet Show. The Muppet, oh. the Muppet Show was my stuff. That show, I remember looking... So I, you were like maybe six or seven? Probably five, six, seven? I went to the Muppet Show, Ronnie. I was, I was young, but I remember looking at the well, clock. Well, I was in fifth or sixth grade when I was super into the Muppet Show, which would make you about four at that time, three or four. But, um, so were you watching it in like at like 7.30 in syndication? Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. Wow, so you were pretty little. That's like the age I would just passed when I would have been watching Sesame right. Street. Right, uh, but the Muppet Show... I don't know if I was laughing out loud at it, but it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. It in my was extremely life. funny. Like it was, I the humor was exactly what I wanted. It was like it was, it it seemed to be funny in ways it, in not. I don't know if I was recognizing it being subversive, but because it, you know it wasn't like they were you know it was for little kids, but there was a little there was a little bit of an edge to it, and they were puppets, so you could get away with a little bit more stuff, and occasionally had celebrities on, and there was. I think uh, Luke Skywalker was on it once, so that's you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're under, you're underselling this. I mean, like I I realized like a wh- pretty long time ago. Like, uh, there's two kinds of things I really really like. I really like absurd stuff, and I do like character based humor, or I like something where like the humor of whatever's happening comes out of what I know about the character, and that's the Muppets in Spades. It's like you know, you if I just say the word Gonzo to you, like it's going to make you laugh because you're like Gonzo. He's this bird who's in love with a chicken. And like, and like the whole show, it, but there was so much of that. There's so much of the like, it was it was just enough of like old Hollywood stuff that you could kind of recognize, along with just patent absurdity that even a little kid could find funny. Like the fact that a, that a, that a pig was in love with a frog was it was kind of funny even then. Not not even to make it weird and gross like they've done today, but like that's funny. And then the, to have Peter Sellers there, like walking around and and acting like these were all like people behind you know backstage was uproariously funny. 
And it was like it was like a sketch comedy show starter set for kids because you know they had they had segments and skits they do pigs in space like that's a bit right and it was recurring right. and it was a funny concept and it was like this is your starter kit for like uh, you know SNL and Monty Python SCTV, and sort of, you're right you know, absolutely like it, this was the kid version of it and it would it would let wow. you it would let you become familiar with the format and you, how how else could you, how else does pigs in space get on air you can't make a show called pigs in space there's not enough there for a show right and if you did it once okay but if it's a thing with a theme song and you're watching the muppet show and they start singing the pigs in space theme song you, you know what's coming and it's like and it's an absurd enough premise and like again character-based humor because you know what the pigs are like and you've got the the guys in the balcony and you've got the eagle and like the character every sketch has an opportunity for the characters to be themselves in the sketch you know the swedish chef and the whole nine wow. yards so that was yeah 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 that yeah. was the first real comedy thing that connected to me and if i think if i extrapolate forward to all the other things that connected there, you know, there's a through line from the Muppet Show to the later stuff. I never would have thought of that. This was super early, and then there was this dry period of like boring Saturday morning cartoons and, and 70s sitcoms and stuff. And then I feel like things didn't start going again for me until probably middle schoolish when I started to stay up later. Do you have that experience too? Where like there? Oh the, no, no, the, that was a huge the, the sneaking TV. I'm not done with Muppets though because. Were you... No, you'd be way too young. You never saw Laugh-In when it was on. Uh, I still saw the, the reruns on Nickelodeon years, years But later. you're familiar with it. Yeah. And, like, that was... Boy, talk about a show that... There's certain kinds of shows that were impossibly contemporary or, or modern when they came out that within, like, two or three years were already like, so like, dated. Like Hee-Haw. Well, maybe, yeah. I mean, I loved Hee-Haw. <laughs> but, but, like, in the case of Laugh-In, Laugh-In was so much... I, I mean, I wonder if they realized how funny that show would be at the time and how not that funny it would be <laughs> even within a few years. It was so broad and so silly and so 60s. Like, even as it rolled, you know, lumbered into the 70s, it was such a 60s show. But The Muppets was... It's funny because you're right. It it really is the bridge for, for a little kid. The Muppets is the bridge between, like, Laugh-In and SCTV or SNL. But, you know, like the recurring bits, because like, back on Laugh-In, you would have recurring bits. Like, you'd have the, like, the dirty old man. Mm-hmm. You'd have the guy looking through the, through the bushes. You'd have Ruth Buzzy hitting the guy with the bag. Um, I never thought of it that way, but that's a really, that's an interesting. But also just that reverence for, like, the theater. Like, you could get the idea that this was about, like, old Broadway or old Hollywood in some ways. Yeah. Like, in a way that today, I don't think people are steeped, even your age. Like, your age, you're probably not as steeped in, like, the idea of old movies as I was. Right, but like that was something that people could cue on. Somebody who was between eight and eighteen could really cue on that in nineteen seventy-eight. That, that was a weird thing with people who are my age that we missed all that because we were too young, we weren't born yet. But then it came back to us when Nickelodeon started doing the Nick at Night stuff and started showing like, uh, you know, well, I think like, did I see My Three Sons in real time? But anyway, coming back around with the whole no. Dick, Dick My Night. Three Sons is like before I was born. Yeah, but anyway, like Nick at Night brought back all those old shows, including like black and white things, and and like. Why were we seeing that at all? Because it had long since gone off the. I mean, I love right. Lucy. I think I feel like I saw in syndication be- well before Nick at Night because that was oh, still. Totally. But like you would want, well, like Bewitched would be on. Probably. Yeah, yeah. The, all those old shows were on Nick at Night, which was you know we were much. I was again. I was almost in middle school. Not that I found them funny or anything, but it was just weird to see them like in my timeline. Those shows come after the Muppet Show because they you know they, it's like Happy Days and then uh, you know uh, Gidget. <laughs> it's like we're... right or or the late great patty duke yeah patty likes to rock and roll a hot dog makes her lose control that 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 is a crazy you've heard me make the flintstones joke over and over but you know the funny part for me is that i i started watching the flintstones 
when it was when it went into syndication and it had been off the air for let's say liberally that it had been off the air for like say even eight years and it seemed impossibly old at the time so when i was watching the flintstones it really felt like a show from another decade did you recognize now, it immediately as the honeymooners or had, had, were you not no familiar no with no the no no. That no 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 i i we got the honeymooners i seem to remember in the late 70s the honeymooners kind of i feel like the honeymooners went away for a while but then they started showing it at like 11 or 11 30 and everybody knew everybody who liked comedy knew the honeymooners were classic so you would like tune in i'm trying to remember where i would have seen the honeymooners before that but we had like Crosswits, <laughs> the Crosswords game show, and uh, Honeymooners would be on really late. And, and then after that, like the Twilight Zone might be on. But uh, boy, that's super interesting. So all of those shows must have felt like, I mean, like for me, like I'm thinking about watching Dennis the Menace, Ugh, where yes. I know Dennis the Menace was made, I believe it was made, like Leave it to Beaver, it was made a little later than you'd expect. Like when you watch Leave it to Beaver, you watch Dennis the Menace, it feels like a show from the early 50s. But I think they're actually from the late 50s, early 60s. It's for people pining for the imagined universe of the early 60s. That that never really existed. (laughs) Huh. So you got Muppet Show. You got Laverne and Shirley. So when did you, like, what what came along for you that where you went like, oh, this is for me, or this is my thing? Like, what was your REM? What was your U2? So it's a combination of factors. I think it starts with being like getting closer to middle school and at least being of the age where you're going to stay up late or sneak stay up late or whatever. And that lets you, uh, let me uh, come in contact with comedy vehicles that I had not seen before. The first one I can remember is being like at a sleepover, elementary school sleepover and seeing Saturday Night Live because it was on so late at night, right? You know, it's like whatever, it was 11, 11.30. Like it never, you know, the only time you're ever up that late is you're at a sleepover. All of a sudden, you know, you're not going to go to bed, especially if you're having a sleepover at someone's house and the parents go to bed, you know, that kind of sleepover where they can't, but we bother to stay up and then the kids just stay Oh, no, up. yeah. That's the best kind of sleepover. Right. And so that's where you see SNL. And I think this was like Eddie Murphy time. Maybe uh, I don't, I might be misremembering. But anyway, like SNL definitely seemed uh, dangerous in a way that The Muppet Show didn't. But you could, but again, I, I sense the same thing. Like this is The Muppet Show, but with people. They have funny skits and they, they say weird things and I don't get all the humor. Um, but this is something. Uh, Johnny Carson. Uh, another thing there, you, oh, only, you, only, you only see that if you stay up late. And I recognize that as uh, surprisingly funny. Like it seemed like a stodgy, like old person show, but Johnny Carson was really good at what he did. And you know, the, the whole concept of having a monologue and then being witty with guests and it's, it's, it's really difficult thing. to, I mean, Johnny Carson is, is a topic that comes up on a lot of shows that my friends and I do. I mean, partly because I think it's, it's, I'm not trying to sit here and say like, oh, you know, oh, what a big deal he was. It's just that there is not an analog for Johnny, Johnny Carson today where, you know, what do you what do you compare him to? I mean, it was what everybody it's what every adult watched when they went to bed or it was it was the like the, the default TV show for 20 years. Yeah, and you know he, what I mean? And even then, I recognized that he was like the last the last dinosaur, the last of a dying breed. Like he was super good at what right. he did, but he seemed to be in a different class than everyone else, which uh, Which is not a sign of a healthy ecosystem, right? But no, but he was like he was the only one I had. Like I have, wasn't my parents' age. I hadn't seen all his predecessors. I didn't know where he was getting all these things from. Like the you know who was the his the line of predecessors? I was about to say Paul Allen, but that's Microsoft. Steve Allen and uh, Jack Jack Parr. Yeah, right. I hadn't seen any of them. So as far as I was concerned, they were very very different. Steve Allen hugely influential on 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 Letterman, and Jack Parr was just 
so nutty balls yeah, different. Or, or Merv Griffin or any like I, I hadn't seen any of that. So as far as I'm concerned, okay. it was Johnny Carson and he was the beginning and the end of this entire universe. And he, he lasted such a long time. And then um the final bit of late night thing was uh when letterman started to come on the scene that was even later right and letterman could not have been more different than johnny Carson. oh my god so you're eight nine ten at this point yeah not seeing it regularly but staying up late and and realizing there's this stuff going on and and so that was kind of like touching on like and it seemed unfair to me this all happened really late at night like why aren't these shows on during the day i guess but you know it was it was more exciting for for me to see it at night i eventually became a regular uh, viewer of all those shows. I've, eventually, as I got older, I would always watch Johnny Carson, David Letterman, Johnny Carson, David Letterman. After everything, I would just that's I, I was night owl, and that's what I did. But I think the real, the real breakthrough, like those things, did not. I I like them, but they were, they weren't. They, they seemed to be humor that everyone should find funny. They were like just like universally funny. Like didn't every, you include Letterman in that? I mean, it, I, I mean, I it's, it's, it's it hard to articulate but, how but, weird how weird Letterman felt for the first uh, two to three years. By 1985-86, he was becoming more like self-consciously silly in a way that you could understand with bits. But like the first two or three years of David Letterman were like Dada. But it, you know, mostly in comparison to, to Carson, he seemed weird. But he still, oh, but yeah, because yeah, the yeah. format was still, I come out, I do. What passes for a monologue, but isn't real? I didn't understand why it was like that. I love, you know, learning he did three jokes that weren't funny. Right, exactly. That was like mandated by Carson. Um, yeah, but that was fast. But then he would go back and he would sit behind a desk, and a series of guests would come out. And so it seemed like the same type of thing. Like it wasn't as sort of, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a sketch comedy show, right? So it was in that format. But he was like the weird one of those. But the, the real thing that started to the sort of kicked me off into what I would think of as my humor was the Tracy Ullman show. You remember the Tracy Are Ullman you show? kidding me? Of course, of course. So that was like okay, okay, Muppets. okay. You're, you're you're getting pretty far ahead here, yeah. but th- okay. But I, I'm just trying to draw like this is my okay. the wandering path through this, and then Tracy Ullman was like the Muppets and SNL like we're lead, <laughs> we're leading up to this where it's like right, it's that kind of format of show. There are neurotic people on it, but it's much weirder than you think it is like it's going to be. It is really weird, like weird yeah. in like in, you know in a, in an almost off putting way, weirder than David. For, Letterman. Yeah, for being on like a stuff. big for being on like a big four station, it was improbably weird. And she was such a gamer that that whole cast was so game for whatever weirdness. It was you know like in a way that the state maybe a little bit later than that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Later, yeah. Where you'd be just be like, what are what is this thing that I'm watching? Well, kids in the hall. Kids in the hall is like you know the, the, that ter- the turbocharged version of uh, of. Uh, or Canadian charged version. Of Tracy I love that show so much. Right, and and you know what Tracy Ullman is the bridge for, right? The big yeah, one. Yeah, I know. The, the I know. Well, okay, okay. We, let's not get too much further. I, one thing. Okay, so I want to catch up with you. Uh, the thing I don't want to skip over too fast because I feel like there's there's if I had to just pluck them out, setting aside the Marx Brothers. If there were three things I had to pick out, uh, yeah, Letterman. Letterman would probably be the third. The second one, the preceding Letterman, uh, or around the time of Letterman was Monty Python. Um, but I, I got to say Steve Martin. So like the thing was like, I remember like the first time I watched freaks and geeks and the nerdy kids are quoting Steve Martin bits to each other. Like Steve Martin, just to get this, want to make sure I, I give the man his, his dues and his respect. Like Steve Martin was comedy when I was in fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade. Where did you experience him? Where did you get, hear anything that he ever did? Well, I mean, one thing I also, okay, so let me jump back one more step. Uh, I just searched for something for the first time since apparently, 
1977. I can tell you exactly the first SNL I ever saw. I was staying over at a, a sleepover thing with some much older people, and I got to stay up improbably late. So I can tell you what I remember from the first time I watched SNL, I still remember very clearly, was a fake commercial for something called the Meat Wagon Toy Ambulance, which like burst into flames or something like that. So with that in mind, I can tell you the first SNL I ever saw was December 17th, 1977. So five months after seeing Star Wars, I saw my first SNL. But yes, so as far as Steve Martin, yeah, absolutely. He's like Saturday Night Live, but albums, like you would listen to Let's Get Small um, on LP or or 8-track. And it was a little, it was not appropriate for people our age, but every kid who could, who could get their hands on a Steve Martin album had the whole thing memorized. I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, you know, you think about like when you see things from the 50s, if you want to reference like 19, whatever, 55, you show a little kid with red hair and freckles and a coonskin cap because every little kid had a coonskin cap. Like Steve Martin was our coonskin cap. Like everybody loves Steve Martin. So that was a big bridge for me. Uh, just, just want to make sure I give the man his due. And you mentioned Pony Python in there. Monty Python was not on my radar at, at that at that stage. Where were you getting anything from Monty Python? Like a PBS? Well, yeah. So, so Steve Martin, huge. Um, Letterman, Letterman, a little bit. I'm trying to do this in the right order. So, what happened was, how did this start? Uh, my first girlfriend and I had broken up in tenth grade, and I started uh, seeing another girl who was a year older and she had a really good friend who was also in her grade as a junior. And they brought me into their like hilarious nerd club where we all liked Adam and the ants. We all liked like new, new romantic, like weird new wave bands. And they were like going to introduce me into their cult of Monty Python because they had a VHS tape of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So if I'd ever seen Monty Python on PBS, which is where most people that I know saw it, like late night, people my age and a little older saw it on PBS. For me, it was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And so whatever that was in like late 1982, the first time I saw Monty Python and the Holy Grail, like that was arguably the most transformative like comedy evening for me. So that's where that came along, was somebody had a had taped it off of HBO, I think, in, in the 80s. And then I was... I, I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And it was, it, was, it was so weird, and it was so English. It was so strange. It was so hard to understand, and it was so right up my alley in a way that I'm really kind of still unpacking today. So that's when that came along for me. As far as the TV shows then, the TV shows, it did not used to be easy to watch Monty Python or Faulty Towers. Like, you would have to, like, go and, like, really seek it out. I think mostly I knew the movies, and I knew the TV shows. I knew the, I knew the sketches from, like, stuff, like, eventually then Live at the Hollywood Bowl – Secret Policeman's Ball, like live performances of their stuff, because you just it wasn't on TV all that much. Yeah, Monty, Monty Python. I think I had to wait for the VCR revolution because that was the only way. Like right, it wasn't right. like there was no one sort of passing around the VCR and the cable revolution. Was that? They, but like, but renting, right? I mean, because because like they would put out these multi volume sets that were super costly. But like you could go and you could get like, oh, I'm going to get this this cassette from season three or whatever. That's like all there was in the comedy section. You go to it was kind of grim. Like it was not a lot of selection in the early video stores, but everyone would have a copy of the, the Holy Grail, and maybe they would have like Life of Brian. Well, you get a copy of the Jerk and maybe a Jerry Clower uh, tape or something. But yeah, now that was. Those were special, and, and, and it was a little bit of a slog. It was a little bit of – because, you know, not every episode, especially the first season, not every episode is, like, ridiculously funny. But and, and they're weird, and they don't make any sense. And you might watch this half-hour episode and go, that was pretty good. But then they would really land it, and it was, it was the, the most, like, molecularly funny thing I'd ever seen in my life. 
it always it, i still always categorize it as like foreign humor like it was right 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 it, because i didn't it, it felt funny and weird and i and i you know you, you memorize the movies and recite the lines and and when flying circus was on pbs i would watch it and again you know like i said the, the hollywood bowl live things uh but it always it always felt like something different like i i felt like i connected better to people who were neurotic in the american way <laughs> instead of being neurotic yeah, in, the, sure, in, the, sure, in, the, sure. in the british way and so i was laughing at them but it didn't feel like they were speaking to my life experiences was half the things they were saying i didn't make any sense to me anyway which is- but it was the juxtaposition to me it was like and again this is why i feel like i'm i'm not merely trying to make a like a cohesive like history here i'm trying to say that, like i i think that i think absurdity has always been really important to me. The idea of two things that should not be together. And I mean, it, you know, it's, you see, you see lots of absurd things when you're a little kid that where you make an easy joke or something or something silly happens or somebody in a gorilla suit shows up. And that's funny, but like their ability to like, to, to make a complex layered meta joke without putting a hat on a hat was like, was like amazing to me. And I mean, so like, for example, here's another funny example. Like I, I don't know how this started. It might have started with me quoting this bit, but I ended up showing my daughter the Four Yorkshiremen sketch. And I'm here to tell you, your, your theory is right. She, I had to explain a little bit of what was happening in it, but like she thought it was funny too, just because of the funny voices. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, that's... But she, but she's, sometimes we'll be walking back from school, like we're, I'll walk her home from school and she's like, you know, why, why do you live in a lake? And I'll, <laughs> and I'll say luxury. <laughs> Or more appropriate, luxury. Like, because that's part of the funny part. Part of the part of the funny part is like saying it like Graham Chapman or saying it like Eric Idle. What? It's not even that funny. It's the ultimate dumb nerd joke to make. But if you say "Does she go? Does she go?" and you say it like Eric Idle, like everybody laughs along with you because they've made that same dumb voice, that same absurd. Yeah, they're doing a voice too for other British people. It's just doubly right. absurd to us because even the normal British one sounds weird for us. And then they're they're imitating a particular accent and exaggerating it on top of that. But the Yorkshire accent is so perfect for those particular characters because you would expect that people who sit around talking about how much harder things used to be would talk exactly like mm-hmm. they sound. Now, what about just real, real quick? Because I don't want I want to get back to the Tracy Elman. But did did you um, ever get into Faulty Towers? Are you speaking of your past episode on Roderick, when I think of Faulty Towers, I do think of PBS pledge drives, and I think of shows that I did, <laughs> I think of shows that I didn't want to watch. It was that yeah. and Doctor no, Who. No, it's because you know what you turn it on, and there was this whole there's this whole series of like no, no offense to the fifth doctor but you would have those shows like those all creatures great and small kind of shows there there's a certain kind of show that when it came on you go oh it's english people <laughs> and it's now the, the phrase that i when you were a kid did you ever hmm, did you ever uh fret over how some shows look like this and some shows look like that like what i what i would now call film versus videotape but back then, you would go, why do some shows look like they're inside and some shows look like they're outside? Yep. And some shows look like they were entirely made of cardboard. <laughs> but, but like All in the Family is obviously an inside show. Yep. Barney Miller is an inside show. The Love Boat is an outside but, show. But, those, but the, thing, the inside shows, though, I would say the sitcoms, they all look like what they were. They were shot on, shot on the same soundstage, yeah, sometimes three, in front of a live studio audience. Yeah. Yes, you yes, could, yes. You could, visual, you could visualize the set by watching the show. And then... When I saw other ones, they looked like they were made in studios, in like weird British studios with messed up lighting and and not good set dressing. Well, and then to make matters worse, this did not. This I cannot think of a single instance where this happened on a regular network show that I watched as a kid. But on English shows, it would happen all the time. You would be inside 
the uh, what's it called uh, Torque or whatever the they're inside the hotel. You're inside Basil's hotel, and then he goes outside. And so it was on video, and now it's on film, and it would be in the same episode. Yep. That was such an English show thing to do, and it was so disorienting. And it's all, like of a sudden, all of a sudden, everything has film grain on it. You're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> right. And the lighting's much more muted. Yeah. So, yeah, but so that you never got into uh, Faulty Towers. No. I think you missed your window at this point. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, it was just like, it just the same thing with Doctor Who, which I probably would have enjoyed if I could have gotten through a single damn episode, but it was just, it was so, like, low rent and slow, and Faulty Tower is like, it just wasn't connecting with me at well, all. Well, some, some of the best old Who episodes have some of the most, like, ridiculous effects. I showed my daughter, I think it was Genesis of the Daleks, we were watching, we were watching some old Fourth Doctor episode a while back, and it's like, I was like, oh, I remember this being so much better when I was 13. It's still good. Like, it's still good, but the pacing is just glacial, and the effects are just, are monstrous. They're, they're, it it, it looks like a high school production of something today. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Squarespace. Hey, you guys know Squarespace, they're the best. And they are the simplest way for anyone to create a beautiful landing page or website or online store. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. And when to you uh, and enter the offer code DIFFS, D-I-F-F-S, at checkout, you will get 10% off your first purchase. Nothing wrong with that. Squarespace has easy-to-use tools and templates. And Squarespace helps you to capture every detail of what drives you. If it is worth the effort, it's worth sharing with the world. I think that was Immanuel Kant that said that. Squarespace puts all the power you need into your hands. It takes away the pain points. You ain't got to worry about hosting or scaling or what to do if you get stuck with something. With Squarespace, you can and will build a site that looks professionally designed regardless of skill level. There is no coding nerdery required. You'll easily be able to make your website look and feel exactly how you want. And Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology that powers your site. That ensures security and stability. And they are trusted by millions of people in some of the most respected brands in the world. I'm a brand. I'm respected by some. I use Squarespace and I love it to death. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Squarespace's site templates are stunning to look at. They all feature responsive design, and that means your site is going to look great regardless of the dingus upon which it is viewed. But this is just getting started. Squarespace has tons of awesome features that you get 24-7 support via live chat and email. There's the Squarespace commerce platform that allows anyone to add a store to their Squarespace site. And they have this dynamite thing called the cover page functionality. You can build great-looking single-page websites, yeah, rock-solid hosting, fast, fast, fast hosting, solid security, beautiful, double-plus good Squarespace, me love. If you want to stretch Squarespace even further, you got to check out their dev platform. This lets you dig into the code with your own bare hands and tinker with your Squarespace site. And here's the thing. If you sign up for your year, you also get a free domain name. So you can call this thing whatever you want. You should totally do this. And Squarespace plans start at a... Very, very affordable, $8 per month. So please, friends and neighbors, go to squarespace.com. Start a trial with no credit card required. Start making that website today. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, which you totally should, make sure to use the very special offer code DIFFS. That's D-I-F-F-S. That gets you 10% off your first purchase, and it shows your support for Reconcilable Differences. Our thanks to Squarespace for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. I want to get you back to Tracy Ellen. I just, I also just have to say in deference though, that like David Letterman, like if there's, I, I can't think of a, a single person that's been more like personally influential to like what I find funny or like how I would do a bit. 
is unconsciously like everything I do is basically a David Letterman ripoff. Yeah, it's you know if so somebody you, you know it's a lot of it's the hitting you at the right age like you talked about Laverne Shirley or, or whatever the music you listen to. There's just something that comes along at exactly the right time. It's exactly the right. It's like Cinderella, you know, and the and the slipper. Like for me, that was Letterman in about 1984, especially 85. And like I was, I was just utterly obsessed with him. Like I did not miss an episode of that show. And I think really what what made him stand out to me was that he did follow Carson. Like that it was it was like the the remix dark side mirror universe through the looking glass version of the exact show that you just watched. But then like, you know, if he had nothing to play off of, if he wasn't subverting that to to me, that was this institution, this, this, you know, respected, important institution. Because again, I had no predecessors to him. I didn't know any of any of his predecessors. Like it was just Johnny Carson. He was just there and this is what he did. And he did it amazingly well. And then Letterman would come after and just make a mockery of that. The entire, it's like, he didn't even want to be on this show. Like he didn't like someone was forcing him to do this format. And it's just, right. it was, it was ridiculous. And so he would, he would find ways like, like who would put that after Johnny Carson is the funny part. Yeah. And like I can't even remember down to the way Carson would end and like he would very quickly, you know, exit the stage, you'd roll the credits and you know, it'd still be this glitzy kind of, you know, uh Hollywoody Broadway looking production and then you hear bum bum ba da da ba da with the New York scene yeah, and, and smoke it looked coming out of things, steam. so gritty yeah. and it used to be almost like old SNL credits where if, if memory serves it was it was before you know it was pre nine eleven pre New York greatest city in the world. It was from the from the beginning. It was so acerbic and so and the music was weird and there's a flange on the guitar and you know what I mean. Like it was like and, this. And then this... he would come walk out and like you'd see like the behind him instead of being a, a like a beautiful curtain, it would be like the band off to the side and a little bit of the set and he would walk and back and forth. That tiny little and... postage postage dance stamp uh, bandstand. He's wearing wrestling shoes. Right, and he keeps. Come with walking like a, up with to like the a, camera and then backing away from it, and the camera is trying to just keep him in view. And, he, and Barbara Gaines is yelling from off stage. <laughs> like you don't have like a producer yell on a TV show as part of the show. And, and then like within thirty seconds, they were showing the reverse angle of showing what his cue cards were. <laughs> like you know, <laughs> right, whoever right, was holding right. the cue cards, and you could never tell if they knew they were going to be on camera. Or this is part of the bit, or is it just they were always ready to just and, go? And with- Paul, Paul was so unctuous. <laughs> like he was like when you would watch him do like the Nick whatever bits on you know Star Wars mm-hmm. these are the Star Wars when you would watch him do that on SNL and he was being the unctuous like uh, Vegas personality mm-hmm. to have this 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 super Jewy uh, bald guy there doing that character in that setting it really it did seem like something almost from SCTV where he <laughs> that's right Dave where he was obviously just th- that was not on <laughs> network TV yeah. it didn't happen oh my god I loved it so much Larry Bud Melman I'm sorry, now we're doing bits, but I just remember one of the first things I, after I'd moved to Florida, I really missed my best friend from childhood, and we um, we got back, we got to hang out one summer of, I guess it was 82, maybe 83, and we rebonded over Dungeons and Dragons, professional wrestling, and David Letterman, which we had, we'd become obsessed with these three things, like fairly early on, and we would just, we thought Larry Bud Melman was about the funniest thing we'd ever seen in our lives. Do you remember him with the hot towels at the bus yep, station? yep. <laughs> my, my favorite my favorite letterman bits and uh, he did a series of these so i don't know which one i'm particularly remember but it wasn't always him sometimes it was him but usually he was directing somebody else they would go to a store that was near his studio oh like with like with rupert and he would like feed him lines they'd go to a, a convenience store go to a deli go to get a coffee they would just 
and that was the whole bit. Like, I would have loved the planning session. What we're going to do is we're going to have a guy go down uh, with a camera, crew, and a microphone, and they're going to go to the deli. It's like, okay, now what's next? What's the rest? No, that's it. That's the whole bit. You're going to go down there, and I guess you're going to talk to them. Maybe you're going to order some food, and Dave would be talking through the person or whatever. He would make the person – like, he did this. This is one of his funnier CBS bits was he would send Rupert G. somewhere, and whatever he said to Rupert, Rupert had to say no matter what. Right. That was the final evolution of that. But early on when it was – you know, it was still on NBC, still after Carson, still had no budget. That was was what they would do for their little sort of remote outdoor gags. And and it made no sense. And you could totally tell the people at the deli – didn't, we're not really interested in being on TV, and especially for the first few times, we didn't really know how to react to it. And it was just, it was like, it was the completely unpolished disaster version of like jaywalking, where Jay Leno actually goes out and does a bunch of canned uh, comedy routines with things. And that was the, that was the David Letterman that I love, the guy who went to the deli and talked to people, and then had an archer come on the show and shoot a uh, radio with their bow in the hallway. <laughs> that's that's. I was just trying to remember the spot. Um... Stop calling me chief. That was a little bit later, but that I think the conceit was he he would get something going. He talked to somebody, and each time he would address the person of chief mm-hmm. as chief. And and the bit was how long yep, yep. <laughs> could he talk to that person before they would say stop calling me chief? That, that's a bit born of Letterman's obsessive, you know, calling people by nicknames like that over years and years. And someone must have pointed are these, out. Are these to your him, drums? So, someone must have pointed out to him. You always call people chief or whatever. Don't you think people are going to find that? And then he's like, I can make a bit out of that. Right, <laughs> I do do right. that a lot. Have you ever seen the um, supercuts of of Letterman asking somebody in a band, "Are these your drums?" <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Anyway, just uh, that that one that one uh, can't be passed too hard. Okay, so let's let's flash forward a little bit because now we're getting into a very important time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so like almost everything we've talked about up till now, you take something like the let's say the irreverence of the irreverence of the Marx Brothers. You got the irreverence of somebody uh, like Steve Martin. There's a lot of irreverence. Like there's a certain kind of humor. That's, you know, uh, playing against the grain a little bit. Anti-establishment. Like the same thing that seemed like assertive humor. Even Monty Python had it a little bit. We didn't understand what the hell the establishment was in England, but there was obviously was an establishment and they were thumbing their nose at it. Uh, And so like all things, SNL and all these things were were coming at you. Like they may not have had a political message, but they, they were actively asserting their position against whatever the dominant thing of the day was. They felt subversive in right. some small way. But, but now we're getting into shows. When you talk about Tracy Ullman, one, one we skipped over that I, I want to mention at this juncture, alongside Letterman, is going to be SCTV. Were you ever into SCTV at all? No. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it, and I know the pedigree, but I don't right, think right, it ever, okay, okay. ever aired then, And later, later on shows, I'm going to say like the state, but like a, something very special happened during the reign of uh, the... <laughs> of uh, Tracy Ullman, where a show came along where a certain kind of reflexive pop culture irreverence went to a new level, I would say. Did you watch Tracy Ullman fairly religiously? I did. I I watched... So Fox started... The Fox Network, if memory serves, started around 1986. Is that where they... uh, Star Treks? Star Treks was on there, right? Uh, I don't know. But they had... had Joan, Joan Rivers had a show... Yeah, I think he had Star Treks was on there. The new Star Treks with Professor X was, was on Was that really there. on Fox? I... I feel like it was. You had, but they did not have a lot of shows circa 1980. I'm trying to remember if In Living Color was later, probably. Well, I'm remembering because like Husker Du was on Joan Rivers' show for their, I think, last album. Very, very awkward interview. 
which would make it about 88, 80, I guess 89 probably. So yeah, so 88, 89, they have a little side project where they got a little funny animation somebody puts together for Tracy Ullman, which was The Simpsons. I, yeah, now, I, I, know, I, I remember seeing the animated things on Tracy Ullman, and I took notice because I was, oh, I was an animation fan for my whole life, despite all the terrible Hanna-Barbera cartoons or whatever, and I would always note... <laughs> it's when, a living! <laughs> yeah, I would always note when a live-action show had an animated bit. So, for example, on Amazing Stories, I still remember uh, Family Dog as a really important moment because it was it was Amazing Stories was a live action Twilight show, you know, Twilight Zone style, right, right, right. story show. That, that Spielberg, Spielberg did that, right? Right. Um, and yeah. then Family Dog came on, which was like you were watching a regular live action show with actors, and all of a sudden there was an animated thing, and it was amazing, and it was Brad Bird. I mean, I didn't know it was Brad. You're kidding? Bird I've never heard of that. You have to watch Family Dog. Like Family was, Dog. Like it was. It was the same type of thing where this is different, not just because it's animation, but like I, I was too young to like know who was behind it or whatever. Even years and years later, I had to. It's like the Amy Man thing all over again. You got to connect back and go, oh boy, scary Amy Man. Oh my god, same person. Like Brad Bird, Family Dog, like. Uh, so Family Dog, it's it's a little bit like kind of like retro, a little bit Chuck Jones looking. Is that him? It was stylized. Um, okay. And the animation was a little bit different, but like you have to watch it. The humor, the humor seemed more sophisticated than normal. And I think it was on Amazing Stories. But anyway, so Tracy Ullman, I'm watching. It's very, this interesting sketch comedy show with this crazy person with this weird accent. Like you said, all the different characters that she did and coming out in the bathrobe. And it was just like weird and and. and you know, and then they would have this segment where they would have animation, and the animation also looked weird. People don't remember how damn weird The Simpsons looked when they were on Tracy Ullman. The Simpsons was like it was. What's funny was that it is funny how within three years, most of the characters on The Simpsons looked like the characters that all all of us fans knew from Life in Hell. Life in Hell had a much more refined look than early animation. I, I don't know if it was like a like a Korean translation problem, but the early animation on The Simpsons on Tracy Ullman was unbelievably poor, and which made it kind of funnier because it was really bad. Uh, the animation was bad, but the character designs were, like you said, like more like Life in Hell, more kind of like not rounded and pleasing, but ugly, like actively ugly and strange looking, and everybody. Was... But it also worked. Like like Homer Simpson basically being Walter Matthau was extremely funny it re- and it really did work yeah and it actually you know the the simpsons family setup was perfect for those little vignettes do you know what i mean like the like you know in, in a way the most miraculous part is that they could that they could turn that into a 22 minute show because it was actually so perfectly suited for like you know oh bart just did something bad segments yeah, yeah. And, and when i was on tracy allman they hadn't even nailed down like what the characters are going to be like if you look at that homer he's like that's not the homer that i know that that part is not i mean you can see the seed of it there but they like it was so sort of like a like a embryo uh and they were so short and they weren't even all that funny and Mm -hmm. i don't know like i think family dog had a much bigger impact on me than those animated segments but i did take note of them as animated segments and and because i took note of them when i learned that that was going to be a show of its own um, I'm like, all right, well, I like Tracy Ullman, and those skits were funny. I still remember the one that was it, tapping on the glass with the fish in it, I think is the uh, the, the, the first one I probably saw. Um, and then they had uh, a television show, and I don't know how we all found ourselves watching it, but I think it only took like one or two episodes, and that humor was like a, you know, a laser-guided missile right into the, the center of our of our collective brains. And I'm not entirely sure why, because I haven't gone back and looked at those early episodes yet. But 
they're still like when you go back, like you watch the first one that aired. Uh, it was not great, but it was definitely. I think. I think. Um, Simpsons roasting on our open fire. The one where they get Santa's little helper. I think that's the first one that aired. Um, but like it's 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 got the stuff you can recognize it as the Simpsons for sure. But it would be it would be um, well. First of all, they had to sort out the problem with like <laughs> some there were some there were some serious problems with with the animation and the coloring and stuff like that. But even like I guess to your point though, in less than a season, the Simpsons were very clearly the simpsons it was still there was still a little bit it was a little bit sweet and there were some hugs and stuff like that but like you got those characters so quickly i and i think the hugging actually helped pull in a generation that had grown up on like the expectation that sitcoms are going to have hugging and learning like that sort of yeah, like at, at, at the end at the end bart's gonna like feel bad and give his dad a hug right kind of and they're gonna you know santa's little helper and that whole plot line like it's it's kind of like a feel-good happy ending and that was like it it wasn't immediately as irreverent and off-putting that just got you roped into the show because they, they did a good job it was like you know it was it was i think it was a step up from the typical kind of happy ending heartfelt 70s sitcom it was a little more sophisticated for that but once they had you watching then it was just like you didn't notice as the writers started to go more and more to extremes and try more and more ridiculous things and you know come up with all of the like i remember the the, the oh popular- my god the second the second episode holy crap is this possible the second episode first episode is the christmas episode where they get santa's little helper and they gotta pay to get parts that too removed <laughs> that's funny that's funny you know what the second episode was Bart the genius. I can't believe the one discover your desks, children. Do you remember that? Vaguely. What, no, I mean I still remember that line. Discover your desks. It's the one where Bart basically swaps tests with Martin. Oh, Martin yeah, is in the yeah, second yeah. episode, and now they think they, they think Bart's a genius. That's the second. That's January of nineteen ninety. That show was yeah, on. Yeah, it was front loaded with a lot of influential things in it. Like, but because like I, I just remember the popular impression of The Simpsons being like. Don't you remember, like, the whole Bart Simpson don't have a cow man skateboarding thing? Uh, was, that could not right. have been farther from what the show was about, and I didn't understand why they were trying to do that. Like, like who was that appealing to? If that appealed to you, the show wouldn't, and, and vice versa. Um, but, yeah, once I started wow. going, going whole hog with the, again, with animation, as with puppets, um, as with shows that are on at 11.30 p.m., you can get away with a lot more than you can get away in a live-action show. Like, they... They could do more because you know anything you can draw, you can you can do, and they could get away with being much, much like more uh, cutting and sort of. You could not have a middle-aged man strangling a child as a running bit on a live-action show, or or even just like the the humor cutting out that like every everything was uh, was up for grabs like. Police officers, unions, politicians—you uh, know, like motherhood. They have the mo- plan, but we have the power. <laughs> motherhood, children, teachers. Right. Uh, oh, the family—just like, all the family relationships. All of the like, you know, Patty and Selma are going to play their slides for us. There's so much stuff. There was, there was, there was no angle that was not explored. Right, and there was, you know, there was nothing. Nothing was sacred, and it was all kind of like, oh, it's all in good fun. But like, just think of it. Like, it, it was. It, I don't know if it's nihilistic, but like, like sort of. It was clearly made by people who were like angry with the world in many different ways because every environment they went, nothing was safe. Like in the school, where, like was there any environment where 
people were good at their job and, and like every possible thing that you know every bad stereotype about uh, police officers and captains of industry and teachers and students and students of all kinds the good students the bad students like the closest you had to, to any well, sort of the way good the way person. you imagine teachers and administrators would talk when you're not around that's mrs Garoppolo. that's that's like everything you would fear about what happened in the teacher's lounge like it was on the screen yeah, and it, and it was clearly for the age I was anyway. There was clear things in there that were going to be like just outside the edge of your understanding of exactly what it is they're making fun of, and that you would like grow into them. Um, and you know, I just think it was I don't it wasn't maybe not the right place, right time for the show. It was probably more right place, right time for the crew of writers who had had the similar enough influences to the people who are watching it that they all came together at the right time and made this because i've look at i haven't gone through a big episode list but if i look at the seasons i bet most of the big important moments i'm remembering like you were discovering were probably actually really early that like defined well, the whole I, show i've got a, i've got something here to share with you um so the second half of the first season let me just bring you through a few of these let's start with episode seven the call of the simpsons do you remember the one where the <laughs> he buys the rv and they have like the adventure where the guy's like, where he goes to Bob's RV roundup and he buys the RV. Very, very, very funny stuff. Number eight, Telltale Head. Cold, remember that one, Cold Open? Remember it opens up with uh, with Bart and he's going to saw the head off of uh, Jebediah Springfield? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. That might be, that might also be a noble, uh, noble spirit in Biggins the Smallest Man. Yeah. I think that might be that episode. Uh, you ready for this? Number nine, still one of my all-time favorites, Life on the Fast Lane. I still quote this every week. The one where Homer forgets it's Marge's birthday and has to run and buy, buys her the bowling ball with his name mm-hmm. on it. Remember when he surprised you with the Connie Chan calendar <laughs> and the taco box? <laughs> okay, keep going. Uh, Homer's Night Out, the one with the stripper, Crepes of Wrath, super weird, not that successful episode. Very presaging future episodes. Remember, Bart is a foreign exchange student in France. Yep. Number 12, dude. Krusty got busted. Already, but even by even by episode twelve, Sideshow Bob is enough of a character. Yep. And guess who directed that one, Mr. Bradbird? There you go. Well, didn't he write for them as well? I think he wrote, but uh, yeah, that was his first directing one. While buying ice cream at Quickie Mart, Homer witnesses a robbery. Do you remember that though? And and like and that introduced so much to Krusty and his and his heart surgery. Mm-hmm. You get Sideshow Bob, like and like you cannot you you poor bastards today cannot appreciate how funny it was that the first time sideshow bob <laughs> the voice of <laughs> fraser came out <laughs> it was impossibly funny and we discovered that home, that uh <laughs> crusty actually has tiny feet i mean that's all in the first season this is it's like the wire like you watch the first episode of the wire and you're like or the first episode of deadwood mm-hmm. you're like i cannot believe all of this they, was in the yeah, first they, episode. they established so much, and they just were able to riff on it for so long. And but that was all. That was all by by May of 1990. They had 13 episodes, and that that's how far they went. And I guess what I'm also trying to say by skipping over some of those early episodes, they were very funny. But you remember, for example, that Smithers was uh, was black for a while mm-hmm. because there had been some confusion with the animators. But like by the they had really established themselves. Setting aside the don't have a cow shirts, they had really established themselves as like they were taking leaps and leaps and bounds every week with the show it was like fox fox wanted to manufacture the show that was represented by bard on a skateboard not having a cow and the writers wanted to have a different show and the writers eventually won through attrition because nobody was watching the simpsons after uh, any point of saying like yeah i want to see bart say his catchphrase like that was so quickly a joke within the simpsons about the simpsons like it didn't oh right even get a see, like, don't have a cow shirt somewhere yeah yeah exactly but it's funny because like in my head like i think you know, 
when I think about when I love The Simpsons, I remember enjoying it on Tracy Ellman. I remember thinking the first season was okay. But like even like today, we have our Plex, the single biggest folder on Plex is um, Doctor Who and The Simpsons. So like I will still direct my daughter back to stuff from especially like the third, fourth, fifth season, which I think is, you know, arguably the, the best period for The Simpsons. And so in my head, I'm thinking like it wasn't until like 1992, 91, 92, the show really hit its stride. But there was some gold like like right from the beginning. Even while they were still figuring out what the show was, this enormous cast of animated characters, they, they still got it. Also, uh, Krusty Gets Busted, episode 12, first episode with Kent Brockman. Yeah, they had the characters really early. It's not like you had to wait till season three for your beloved character to appear. Right. They were all, right. they were all in there like, you know, because someone was, you know, Hank Azaria was there to do the voice. And so, boom, like, you have to go out for someone else's uh, voice talent. Can you do that voice? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'm Lenny. This is Carl. I'm Lenny. <laughs> uh, so we should probably do a whole episode on this. But um, man, oh, man, oh, man, this was this was it. Like, like I if I have to think about, like, pinpointing my time as a young independent ass adult in Tallahassee in the early 90s like it was all about setting aside music it was all about Seinfeld and uh, The Simpsons yeah the Seinfeld felt like it came much later and like that was the that was obviously the culmination of my they're contemporaneous they uh, actually they're they're weirdly contemporaneous my obsession with uh, East Coast neurotic people and then the no hugging no learning thing like not that I that I had objection to that in other shows but I was the audience for that like I, I had room in my heart and in my life for one show like that and this was that show and i i think the first episode i think i didn't watch it from the beginning i think at the beginning it was like i don't care about shows like you know because there were so many like i'm a stand-up comedian and i want to have a television show oh, you're talking about vehicle. seinfeld seinfeld yeah. now yeah okay like yeah. uh it was not it was there were some super standout standout episodes the first season but yeah second season's were it <laughs> i sound like jason snell now second season when it really so the first up. episode i remember actually watching in real time and probably wasn't the first one i saw but the first one i remember just like dying laughing about and watching with my whole family was the chinese restaurant episode how late in the into the run of seinfeld was that <laughs> that was early five ten minutes <laughs> five ten minutes yeah because it was i mean because i'd experienced the exact same thing because, that was, because that i was knew actually, people yeah. who, would, who would react yeah. that way how early was that i'm gonna find out that was let's see Okay, so the uh, kind of uh, pseudo-abortive first episode of the Seinfeld Chronicles was eighty nine ninety. Oh my God! Wait, this can't be possible. The pony remark is the second episode of season two. The Jack at the phone message the apartment, the Chinese restaurant, S two E eleven. Wow, that's that's amazing. So that's pretty late. So I missed a whole bunch of of early Seinfeld that I eventually caught. You know. Back on the uh but the re- the pony remark you remember the pony yeah, remark? i had a pony my that's mother the second had a pony my father pony? Had a pony. we all had a pony yes <laughs> I, I do that one all the time and nobody ever gets it <laughs> i had a pony i had a pony that's the uh that's the second episode of season two Oh, I, wonder, God. I couldn't have, maybe i did catch that earlier season three dude s3e5 you got the library <laughs> mr bookman <laughs> You get the parking garage, which is a semi-successful yeah, the par- rehash the par- of the Chinese. Yeah, the par- exactly. Was, yeah. The parking garage and the Chinese restaurant, those were family crowd pleasers because my family had experienced those things and it had said the same things. <laughs> you know, it's like, sure. It was, yeah. Uh, and then, then they tried again with the subway. The subway was fun, but that was a little bit a little bit wacky. Um, Good Samaritan letter to the parking space. 
Yeah, Chinese restaurant was better because it was uh, you didn't have to scale it up. You didn't have to do anything ridiculous because really nothing happened the whole time. You were just waiting. Like how how can just right. waiting for a table be well, if you get the right group of people there and they're all nuts and they're all at each other's throats and over ridiculous oh, it's, things. It's, well, you know, there's a story that's gone around for years now about how Jason Alexander got hired for the show and based on whatever information he had, what he cobbled together was for his character, for George Costanza, he was basically going to do you know, and it's like uh, Woody Allen, essentially, more or less do Woody Allen. Well, and then or Larry David. <laughs> well, that was the breakthrough moment. The breakthrough moment was when Larry David was giving him a note on some kind of a line reading. He's like, oh, wait a minute. This character is actually you. Yeah. And so that's when he realized, like, it's, no, it's not so much Woody Allen. He's basically Larry David. Well, Larry David is very similar to Woody Allen. So it's not, it's not a big range there. But yeah. yeah, but, you know, Woody Allen is more about his internal neuroses. Yeah. And Larry David is more about some he he can't sleep because someone's wrong on on the internet kind of feeling and that feeling of you know we're living in a society yeah, like that's yeah. there's something about that's what made the george character so so beautiful and so tragic was like how much he had to had to address every the, oh god look at this the uh what's it called the red dot remember the red dot which one was that? the sweater with the red dot on it that he got in clearance oh yeah 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 anyway well, humor and i think like curb your enthusiasm went to like i enjoyed curb your enthusiasm but it showed just how far by the end of the simpsons that jason alexander had had brought his character yeah you know like because i would imagine that the larry david on curb is more like the real larry david i don't know it's hard to tell but like and you could see there's some a lot of similarities there but but the the character had morphed into something else but yeah but it was like like an alternate universe larry david at that point but like that's you know that's the things when when curb your enthusiasm curb your enthusiasm what I remember was first came on, it was just after I moved to California, and the first thing HBO showed was this behind-the-scenes, do you remember this? Circa 99, 2000. No, I did watch the show in real time. I caught up with them later. Well, they showed this behind-the-scenes documentary about the new Larry David show that I guess I, I'm a dumbass and I didn't get that it was part of the bit. But it was not that funny, and it was about Larry David starting his new show. Um Eh, you know that's that's fine. That's that that's funny, but it was not nearly as funny as Curb because that was what if um, if Seinfeld was taking a little hit off your buddy's hash pipe. Like Curb is the black tar heroine of Larry David humor. It so perfectly distills like all, all of his problems. Like it, just all the water boils off, and all that's left is, is pure Larry David. Look at these drug analogies that I don't have any experience with. <laughs> Here's the thing, man. Now, I'm just trying to think of something that I found as funny or funnier than The Simpsons after The Simpsons because I just feel like that was that was like peak funny thing. In my, I found in stuff. My life. I found stuff. I found some things funnier. Like I have to tell you as I sit here, like what um, Mr. Show is funnier than The Simpsons a lot of times. Yeah, I feel like I mean I could say the same thing if I want Kids in the Hall or even The State, but that's only in right. small doses and just well, not. Well, no, I got a in... comma. There's a giant comma. There's a huge comma yeah. here. There's lots of stuff that I mean. There are some episodes of Strangers with Candy that I, I cannot. I I, I came to, to to describe to you like like what is so broken in me that I find that show quite as funny as I do, but I do. Um, but what what what's hard to desc- what's even harder to describe in some ways is how much is how enduring the Simpsons is to like just how I think about stuff. I mean, yeah. you know, there's that I, I've mentioned this before, but there's a an essay Oscar Wilde wrote um, 
I don't know what, probably in the 1870s, I guess 1880s, about like how like once you've seen the Impressionists, you see water differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, you know, that's – and it's true. Like after you've, after you've seen a whole bunch of Monets and stuff, like you go, oh, I see that. Now water looks like a Monet. And Simpsons did that to comedy and culture for me. To where obviously there's the bits now about, you know, Simpsons already did it and that kind of stuff. But like it is so enduring to me that like when Frankiac came along, I, I'm not even prepared to tell you how many hours I spent <laughs> just going in and finding the exact screen screen grab. Like you saw tonight, like Dental Plan, Lisa Needs Braces. Like that that is that is well, how was that twenty years ago? And it's still it is still tearing me apart with laughter every time I hear it. And, uh, yeah, and I love the Frankiac just because it makes me be assured that I'm not misremember then i'm not crazy because something i will say things and you know people look at me like they have no idea what i'm talking about and i'm like am i is that was that really in a simpsons episode or did i imagine like, 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 am i am i getting that right yeah did i imagine am i making it up am i not everyone knows the well-known bits but like one which ones i picked out a couple here that was trying to like <laughs> you had some good ones i could not even remember to make, yeah so that's that's actually all right so the 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 first <laughs> one is for, maybe you ate a clove that I don't know why that one stuck with me. It's not a big laugh line. It was. Do you remember the the thing? No, I don't remember. Tell all? me what it's from. Homer's upset about something because I don't know. He did something stupid and he feels bad about it. And he's eating dinner at the table and uh, and Marge asks like, "How's the ham?" And he thinks he's something like, uh, "So bitter it tastes like ashes in my mouth." And Lisa goes, "Maybe you ate a clove." <laughs> And that's not much of a joke, right? But why? Why do I? Because it was, you know, it's Lisa trying to be a know-it-all and trying to be helpful. Marge just wants to know if he's enjoying his meal, and Homer's all mopey and, and sad because he did something bad. And, and you know, the typical Simpsons writing. But, but, I think "tastes like ashes in my mouth" was definitely in there. And maybe you had a, I hear a little Lisa Simpson voice of like when someone complains about something. She's trying feel, to help. Feel, she's trying yeah, to help. Exactly. Like, <laughs> let me give you a plausible thing that could have happened. That would right. explain the distress that you're feeling because I don't understand that the distress you're feeling is about something else entirely. This is this is why I I, I finally got a reason. I don't know if Andy Anatko said this. I read this somewhere, but <clears throat> somebody in describing Bob's Burgers was talking about like you know what is it that makes us love this show so much? And you know one of the, it's hard to describe this unless you've seen the show. But one thing that makes the show so funny is that all yes they are people in a cartoon and they are cartoon characters in a cartoon, but they all talk to each other. But they actually hear what the other person said, and then they respond as though a person would respond in that situation, and it amplifies both of their characters when that person responds in that way, and then the first person responds back to them, right? So, like, you know, Bob might say something, and then Gene responds, and then Bob acknowledges that, and it makes it triple funny because it isn't just like a bit that was lobbed yeah, over the wall. They're not, they're not talking to the audience. They're not th- throwing out, you know, set up uh, punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline there. The, the the humor comes out of the characters and especially like that's the thing i remember the early uh, simpsons ones the second <laughs> screenshot i hear is the drive-by it's like nothing was wasted they yeah, would like, explain this one what what is this one <laughs> i mean this wasn't this this is not a plot of the episode this is just like they happen to be oh because crust- no, you know what it was it was rare eggs yeah, it was no, like it's rare the, 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 <laughs> it's <laughs> not the part of the episode they're just they happen to be on on the, the showing the crusty show and it's the, the meta thing is about when they have the animal person come on the talk show and stuff like that um and then he, you know crusty of course is not going to do well at the like animal Joan, Joan he's like, ah, yeah. you know the, the things attack him and the, the Joan Embry person goes he thinks you're after his eggs and he's like i only ate one only- like it's just it's just a you know in passing on its way through first of all him getting attacked is fine that that's a joke because he's he's not going to be good with animals 
Uh, and the woman saying he thinks you're after uh, he thinks you're after her eggs, which is just a typical nature person thing to say. And you think they're <laughs> done with it, but as the camera fades away, it's like, I only ate one, and just you know, all just in passing. I only ate one is a thing I think to myself many many times. This is this is also this is also a theme that goes through a lot of stuff I find funny, and I've heard John Cleese talk about this a number of times. Like, what is it that makes something funny? And in the case of especially Basil Fawlty. Like what? What the thing that? Uh, forgive me, because I am just quoting him. But the thing that makes Basil Fawlty funny, like Basil Fawlty being a pretentious. It's funny that Basil Fawlty is a pretentious uh, doofus who's not as fancy or smart as he thinks. Right? He listens to Brahms and he thinks he's fancy and he thinks he has a fancy hotel. That's funny. That's a funny setup. What makes it funny is then he does something. And, you know, later on, Ricky Gervais would do this to great effect. Lots of shows have, have done this well in its wake. But what made, what made that so great is that he would do something that would reveal him to be a completely absurd person who was not at all what he meant to be. And that's funny. But you know what was super funny was all of the people watching it happen. So, so many of these shows, what makes it funny is we're watching this person be revealed for who or what they actually are. And that's what makes it funny. And you get like a, like you get this... 10x amount of humor out of this when you get to see that amplified in front of other people. I'm also thinking of um, I, the one I put in. I put in two that were a turning point for me. And I know these are really both fairly obvious examples, but they were both turning points. You put in, so disco, you put in Dental Plan. Everyone knows that one. But the Disco Stew one, I don't remember. Well, let me, let me tell you both. Well, okay, okay, so let's start with the um, Dental Plan. There was a bit that went around in the Conan O'Brien years that became a joke and then a joke and then a meta meta joke, which is like there would be some kind of a thing where Homer or somebody would be bewildered and staring while there's a repetition <laughs> of the voices in their head. And so, uh, you know, a, a, a famous one, I think, from the strike, the strike episode, which is one of my what's it called? Um, Last Exit to Springfield, probably my all time favorite episode. But, you know, that's the one where like Homer has become the union representative. It's got a lot to recommend it. But there's the scene where he's trying to figure out, like, whether we should have this dental plan. or. <laughs> and so there's the line, dental plan, <laughs> dental plan, Lisa needs braces. And he just keeps staring the entire time, right? Yeah, That's it's, funny. It's Marge. He's hearing Marge in his head, and then he's hearing, what was it, Lenny say the word? Len- Lenny and Marge. Yeah. But but the, the but it's it's funny because now anybody on the internet, if you say Danzel plan, everybody will respond. Lisa needs braces, mm-hmm. and it goes on just a little bit too long, which makes it exquisite. Now another great one. Do you remember the one when I think it's the flashback episode where they're gonna? Where I think it might be might be Maggie's first word, but it's the episode where now Bart. <laughs> Bart can't be in the crib anymore, so he makes him the clown bed. Yeah, yeah. Can't sleep, clown Can't sleep, clown eat me. Yep. Right, right. But then he goes and stays with the Flanderses, and, <laughs> and Bart's sitting terrified in the hallway, and you see all the slots. Yep, yep. Iron helps us play. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's also, I think that's the same episode where he's over there. Uh, maybe, and he looks across and sees the bed in his window. Uh, maybe it was a different one where, the, where someone's reading a story to one of the Flanders kids. And like once upon a time, there was, you know, a, a boy named Rod. Um, 
and his older brother Todd, who is five space years older than him. And so, we, you know, it's a boy named Rod, and then they do his older brother Todd. The little kids, oh, you know, the Todd, I think, is the younger one, is okay with it. As soon as he says five space years older, he's like, I don't like this. Like, it's too scary then because they said space years <laughs> instead of regular years. Like, the, now the, right. the stories. And it could have, I mean, I'm mixing this all up with all the Flanders jokes. So like, Flanders, uh, but the, kid, the, kids, are so, Flanders the kids are so fragile and eager to please. Right. It's five space years older. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Space years? I don't like this. <laughs> Nachos, but like in, a, in the case of like all the things that we're talking about here, which are not going to be funny if you're not already enjoying the show, is that they're taking a trope that all of us know. We've all seen the thing like on a Gilligan's Island where things get wavy, which means we're going into a dream, right? They're they're doing a, a joke on a joke without putting a hat on a hat. Uh, they, they're they're successfully making a very funny joke. That is that is a joke based on a reference to other stuff. Like we all get what all of this stuff means, and so like the ultimate like. I can't believe this wasn't a hat on a hat joke is they're having a uh, rummage sale outside their house on, on um, evergreen terrace. And there's like four jokes. There's no way this should have worked, but so they, what's great is first of all, they have all this stuff they're going to sell on the, like out on the lawn, right? Having a yard sale, including a continuing reference, which is, do you remember when Mr. Burns gave them the giant tiki head? Yep, it's in their basement for many, many seasons. Yeah, and it, it just keeps making appearances for no reason mm-hmm. without ever being referenced to. So that's funny. There's all kinds of stuff. It's a, it's a very, very funny thing. But I, if I remember correctly, the joke was something generally like that there was a, a <clears throat> the time when Marge was like bedazzling cloth- clothing. Mm-hmm. And so, and I forget why, I, I, you know, I don't even remember what the original joke was, but the original joke was something like a denim jacket where she had tried to make it say disco stud. Mm-hmm. And so they show, they briefly show a, a jacket where, because she's incompetent at this, you see disco, it says D- disco STU. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. If you grew up in the 70s and you remember all the junk you could buy from TV to do stuff to Coke bottles and denim in your house, <laughs> that was really funny. And the fact that the D was left off and that it appeared to say disco stew was extremely funny, right? I'm sorry I'm explaining a joke. That was funny by by itself. And then this hippie looking, kind of hippie looking guy walks up and he says, and the guy, the guy says, hey, what does he say? Um, hey, dis, Disco, hey, Stu, you should buy this. And they pan over and there's a guy in a ridiculous disco outfit saying, hey, Disco Stu doesn't advertise. It's like four or five jokes in a was row. Was that his debut? It's, was that Disco Stu's? That's his debut. Yeah, this is where he started. Disco Stew started because of that jacket. So, I mean, like, you know, there's no way you're either like going, yeah, Merlin, I know that was funny. I saw that. Or you're going like, I don't I have no idea what you're trying to explain here. But like, there are so many <laughs> levels to this joke that it's it's impossible that they pulled this off. And then, of course, the coup de grace, he becomes a regular character on the show oh, of course he does. named Disco Stew. Yeah. There's room, there's room for so many people in the Simpsons don't, universe. Don't try to change me, baby. Yeah. Like, and, and the thing is, for a show that runs this long. And was so good for such a long period of time. They cover so many things. Like that's why that's why Simpsons did it as a joke. That's because they've covered so much. There's a Simpsons memory trigger in all of our minds for like so many situations. And the whole show kind of eventually like even the thing where where Bart's over at the Flanders or whatever, at various times the the way you identify with the characters is the you know the sort of same man in an insane world thing where that that suddenly this character as absurd as they are is shown to be 
hanging on by a thread. Talk, a, talking about Flanders? Any, whatever the central character is of their center ground. So when Bart's, Bart's over the Flanders, like, Iron helps us play. That is weird and creepy, right? Like, suddenly, Bart's like, you know, Bart, you're your own weird guy and you have your own things going. But, like, when you're over the Flanders, you know what? This is weird. Like, and he feels like he is in this in this big, scary world filled with weird people. Whereas right. sometimes it's the flip side of that. It depends on who you're identifying with. Like, the, the obvious, you know ultimate extension is the frank grimes episode but they just <laughs> take it all i hated that episode take, so much when it came out and now i love it it's absolutely I mean, one of my that, favorite that's episodes. more on the nose of the thing but like that's what the simpsons did is they they wanted to say something about the world and so they would pick whatever character the story is focusing on and they would arrange the right. world around them no matter how absurd the character is especially homer it was just a, a dunce and does silly things you would identify with his plight because you would see as ridiculous as you are the world is even more ridiculous, and so that's why. But like f- Frank is like somebody on like the Outer Limits or something, where like he is. What'd you say? Like uh, insane man in insane world. It's, he's like Eddie Albert on Green Acres. Yeah, like he is clearly. He sees the Matrix. The most, he could totally see the Matrix. It's like, am I the only one seeing this? Don't you people? You know, that's it. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Look at me. I'm Homer Simpson. Right. <laughs> Grab these electrical wires, and I'll be. You know. I gotta go back. Gotta get back to my palace and eat my lobster. Yeah. That's a very. <laughs> oh, we, my wife and I still do pinchy all the time. What a stupid gag! Do you remember? Is that the one with the, you know, the uh, pet the, lobster? The, that's, that's oh, anyone I called the, to name it. I pinchy? was thinking of the. Uh, I was thinking of the um, the the possum in the monorail. But yeah, pinchy. Yeah, and, right. and he's crying as he eats them. He's so delicious. Pinchy. <laughs> 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 but like you know, the, uh, there's one like for example, like there's a noise that I find myself making. As you get older, you find yourself making noises, and there's a noise that I find myself unconsciously making, which is this. How's that mo? And well, it's, it's it's a crusty noise. Oh, that's right. It's yeah. like yeah. Ugh. Yeah. like there, there's a certain noise that I make that like if you know if you hear that noise, you'll know exactly that is the same noise as I almost swallowed some of the juice. <laughs> like. <laughs> You know, that is like that. That is that is crusty, like getting clocked by by existence. <laughs> yeah. I, <Ugh>. Oh, <laughs> oh, they're using a ladder. <laughs> I find myself crusty is so great. I find myself drifting over to Mo, and I think it's probably not a good sign for me. <laughs> I'm a stupid moron with an ugly face and a big butt. My butt smells, and I like to kiss my own butt. <laughs> <laughs> that was real funny the way you took away my dignity <laughs> yeah i remember back i must have been a, flaming mo must have been a really early episode because again that was still where That's they the cheers, still where the they wanted one. to do the, the the feel-good thing you know like right, they wanted right, to have right. an emotional uh, arc or whatever before they had totally given up on on that entirely but the, i feel like those informed the rest of the show even mr plow was like that to some degree they were meant to oh ident- my god my, i love that episode my, so much meant to identify with like uh, barney and the whole mr plow thing like the, the <laughs> senor plow no es macho <laughs> es solamente un borracho <laughs> sorry <sighs> yeah i've been looking for a project to together. <laughs> and even barney poor barney like yeah but, oh when he drops his toothpick oh with the, the b sharps yeah barney <sighs> No, the Simpsons. It's uh, it is it is a towering achievement that has warped the lives of many people in a way all out of proportion. A thing that we would say at my old place where I worked in the late '90s, we would just say, "Look, you know, how familiar are, are you with the Simpsons, and how okay are you with that just coming up a lot?" <laughs> it was almost like a form of form of like you know like harassment, but it was like, "Hey, just just so you know what you're getting into here. There's going to be a lot of Simpsons talk here." 
Yeah, or even just not even you're not trying to make a joke, not trying to be a reference, using it as uh, unintentionally using it as shorthand to uh, to to communicate uh, a complex situation in a small number of right. words. It's like Shakespeare. I mean, like like earlier, I said the lady doth protest too much. Like w- when I say that, people are going to know I'm talking about what Macbeth. Well, they'll, they'll know like the it, the wrong one that you're going for. Yeah. The wrong one that I'm going like, for. The, 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 it's like when you say beg the question, people know what you mean, even though... What you I did not say beg the I know, question. I but know. I think doth protest too much. I think you're doing the same thing that I, I've been corrected on this many times, that it doesn't mean what we both think it means. But I know what you think oh, I think it's it an, means. It's an Inigo uh, Montoyo uh, yeah. reference. No, I'm not going for that one. But but I could do that one, and you would understand what I was getting at. But but yeah, no, getting back to the Simpsons, like, yeah, that you can... <laughs> that it is a easy Ugh. easy way to communicate... <laughs> a complicated thing in a small number of words, and you just assume the other person knows what you're getting. And you know, you know exactly when you say "I for one welcome our new." Yeah, you don't, you just have to say "I for one dot dot dot." I for one, yeah, and yeah. dot dot dot, and people know what you mean. Yep. Okay, we got to go. It's running super long. Um, can we finish up on with one very important question: sure. Where do you stand on the rake gag when yep, no, Sideshow Bob yep. steps on yep. the rakes? What is your What is your feeling on the rakes? Middle of the road, like I, middle of the road. I see, okay, I, I don't hate it. I don't love it like that's the type of thing where you, you understand you have to go a certain distance to get out the other side but i feel like it's a long way to go for not a particularly big payoff see i'm a, i'm on the other side i felt like each time <laughs> each shutter i felt like we got a little closer to sideshow bob's soul because it was a perfect encapsulation of like he is always going to be a clown He's always going <laughs> to step on a rake. It's <laughs> it's always going to hit him in the face. He's always going to hate it. And he's always going to keep doing it again forever. Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the movie. But like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not totally anti it, but it didn't, it didn't get me in the same. I mean, you could argue again for the same thing. Like, at least in these braces, it's the same type of uh, repetition strategy. Just not, not nearly as long originally, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Send the widow a ham. <laughs> Cancel the ham. <laughs> Woo! So we'll talk about your libido maybe next time. Drugs and libido next time. Uh, those are not a combined topic, and I'm not quite sure what we're going to say about my libido. But well, it wasn't that. It's got to get out there. The the people want to know. You know uh, no. what? The, what the hell song is that? Um, what? Uh, oh, it's us, Teen Spirit. Oh, uh, overboard, self-assured mosquito. He rhymed mosquito oh. with libido. Oh, mosquito libido. That's pretty good. Ah, oh, yeah. We've got to do titles this episode. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot spell that. We can't put it in. <laughs> Remember when they go? Oh, many of the participants come from countries without pools. <laughs> Boo-hoo! You break my heart! <laughs> uh, I almost swallowed some of the juice. I, see see uh, what I can type into Frank Yag. What is the most obscure thing you can type into Frank Yag? The thing that you think um, the, the fewest people no the fewest people remember from The Simpsons, but you do for some stupid reason. You can't just go off focusing. No, everyone knows that one. Yeah, you know what? It's uh, like I said, I've talked about this before, but when when the Frank Grimes episode came out, I was like, okay, fuck it, this is it, this is the end of The Simpsons. This is not funny anymore. This show is just dumb and mean. Yeah. And now my daughter and I watch it at least a couple times a month, and I think it's <laughs> I think it's grand when he wants to <laughs> he wants to hire the dog to be his vice president mm-hmm. and gives him a vest. 
<gasps> I mean, it was pushing limits. Like it was, it was doing, it was working as designed, and it was the the first time they had gone that far with that type of thing. Right, and the fact that that Homer, but like also the fact that Homer was ultimately like a secondary character. It was just his like it, will, it was like a Twilight Zone in a lot of ways, or like you know the lottery. It was his like his mute reaction to what was happening mm-hmm. made it so great. <laughs> How's it going, Grimy? I took the time to learn your name. Yeah. <laughs> 